Welcome to Red River Podcast. I don't know what number it is, uh, but I'm going to do another one-on-one here. Um, I finally get to talk to somebody who, you know, we've been kind of Facebook friends for a minute. And uh, if you didn't live in Buffalo, I'm sure we, we would have hung out a lot by now. Uh, so welcome, <laughs> John Scandato, a.k.a. John Draper. Hey, how's it going? I have to correct you. I don't live in Buffalo. I live in oh, Albany, which is Albany, Albany, yeah, Albany, yeah, Albany. Yeah. That's what it was. Albany, Albany is only about 170 miles from New York City. Buffalo is like 350 or something. Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I was, yeah, I, I was giving you way more credit, you know, than, than you deserve. Yeah, you thought. Yeah, well, I talk like I live so far up north, and people are like, "Dude, you're like a th- two-hour ride." Like, what yeah. Are you about? <laughs> this is the last place on earth I ever thought I would live, and I've lived here for um, six years. So going on six years now, I've been up here. Um, I like it. It's great. I mean, I don't really have any issues with it. It's, it, it, it has its pros and its cons, but the pros are pretty significant. If you're someone who, like I grew up in a, you know, I lived in, in Brooklyn most of my life and I lived in Manhattan outside of that before I ever came up here. So space to get like space is amazing. I don't know how you are with space, but space is a big deal. No, I like space for sure. I mean, I I live in West Babylon, like Long Island. So it's like, uh, you know, I I feel like I have the best of both worlds, you know, like I'm close to what I consider civilization, but I I also have leg room and, you know, parking is never an issue. Right. Yeah. Um, But yeah. So listen, the the background really is, you know, a lot of times we we talk about uh, music and we seem to be kind of into like the same shit, but you... You haven't been in a band for a while, so somewhere along the way you you progress into a a podcast called Wrestling Soup, and now you do something called uh, Break the Apocalypse podcast. So I want to get there too, but I also want to get like the history, because I know we talk a lot, and and I don't know your musical history, but a lot of people seem to know it, and uh, the bands that you were in seem to be like a big deal, and I love Synthetic 16 after you told me to listen to it. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, you're part of the Scandato brother uh, dynasty. <laughs> I am. I, I am. I'm in the ugly Baldwin. Yeah, yeah that's right. Oh, you're like we da- called the unattractive Baldwin. <laughs> you're like, are you Daniel? <laughs> I don't know which one I am. I, I, I don't know. I think I was the first one to shave his head. So I, that might, whatever that means. Started that trend. The first one to accept the baldness. Yeah, yeah. to accept baldness. <laughs> to um, embrace the darkness. So what was it like growing up? In, in Brooklyn, this would this was the summer. I don't end up going to a show till the fall of this is 1988, and it's it's a doozy. It's like my first show. Uh, it's a matinee, and it's um, the return of Gorilla Biscuits, who had been banned from CBS because they had a show there at Youth of Today that turned into like a riot, like a year or two earlier. So it was uh, Beyond Maximum Penalty. Gorilla Biscuits, Raw Deal, and the special attraction was a straight ahead reunion. Oh, wow. I think and didn't I someone was, just post that flyer? Oh, yeah. yeah uh, it's, it's a memorable day. Shout out memorable to, shout day, out to Kevin show. Egan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know Kevin. So um, the first 
band I see is Beyond, which is really funny because the Beyond album that comes out years later, there's a picture of them at CB's and you see me and Mike standing in the picture, oh, like the so back cool. of our heads. <laughs> but it's my first show. Yeah, yeah. And I have no idea what's going on. Um, I've never seen moshing. Like before we got there, we went with a bunch of kids from like the suburbs who really didn't know anybody there. And they were giving me like the lesson of like, you know, don't talk to this. You, if you're on the line, people are going to ask you for money. Don't give them any money because they'll think you're from Jersey. Yes. Like, you know, that was like, that it's, it's like, it's like when you go into like prison, it's like the rules. You yeah. Just like... It was, I spent, same, I swear to God, we were, this was the D, the D, uh, the D train was at this point running from Sheepshead Bay to the Bronx. So we would take the D train to West Forth, walk through uh, the park. Washington Square Park, which was a fucking hellhole. Hell yeah. Uh, not like Tompkins at the time. <laughs> no, no, yeah. But yeah. I, it was bad. I mean, it was especially like if I, bought, I bought, kid, I bought fake no mushrooms in Washington. Oh, yeah. Bought tons of weed there. I lived across the street from there years later in life. But um, so I'm like learning, and it's like, listen, there's going to be a lot of people there. You can't, like, if they give me like a list of people, like, if, if, if we tell you that that's who that is, you have to, like, don't, like, don't say anything. And I'm like, like how am I going to know? I don't know anybody. Like, to, like, just be careful. Like, there's certain people like Tommy Carroll, uh, who's uh, the singer straight ahead. He was like at the top of that list. Okay. It was like a Jay Crackdown from the band Crackdown, Tommy Carroll, the Sunset Skins. Um, any Anybody like that, like comes near you, talks to you, like, just like, don't, oh, don't open your mouth. Don't say anything. And I was just like, wow. I was like, this is crazy. Um, was, so that, we get there. was that, was that like something, was that like a deterrent or was that something exciting? And you're like, oh, fuck it. Let's do it. I, I was worried because I didn't know, like, I'm like, who, how am I going to know who the Sunset Skins are? Yeah. Like, you know, I have no concept of, like, you know, who Minus is or Saab, yeah. like, you know, or, or, or I, people that would become my friends, like, you know, like, within a year of being there. But, like, I didn't know this. I just didn't know who anybody. It's like, Tom, how am I going to know who Tommy Carroll from Youth of the, from the uh, Straight Ahead is? So, di um, so different these days. Yeah, it's so different. <laughs> so then I get there and like Beyond's playing and we wait on this long line and people are asking me for money immediately. Um, and I just noticed there was not a lot of girls, mostly skinheads. And it was a smattering of well-dressed people who would turn out to be Gorilla Biscuits. Like what I would consider well-dressed, like Gap clothes. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, the moshing starts and I grab my brother because I don't know what to do. And my brother Mike is like, get the fuck off me. Like, you know, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I just didn't know what to do. And that was like during Beyond. And then Maximum Penalty came on and the place got way more lively, um, which, which at that time I had no idea any connection I would have to that band. And um, I was like, this is great. This is amazing. By the time Raw Deal played, I had a shirt on. It's all cut up. I bought like two T-shirts from, I think I bought a T-shirt from GB. And then I may have bought something from MP, but it got stolen. That was a big deal. A lot of my things were getting like stolen. I would hide shirts that I would buy so I could dance. And it was incredible. That's that's crazy. I mean, that that what a great first show to 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 jump into. Yeah. CBs, eighty eight. I guess you were I mean, yeah, I mean that, that a great time. I mean, sure, you could have been ten years older and seen maybe Zeppelin at the end, but you know, like this is like <laughs> yeah. this is this is like brand new and uh you know, when people talk about CBs, like you know, that's that's a great show to start off with. Um, well, the, the following week I went again, it was Murphy's law, super touch, uh, American standard and collapse Collapse is Sergio Vega's hardcore bands. Okay. Um, and Murphy's law took the picture for their back with a bong album. 
which was in, I think it was in Thrasher at the time, because I was still buying Thrasher. There's this big picture. It's, it's, it's the back to the back of the bong album of all these people outside of CBGB's. That's that show that I was at that show. Um, amazing. Like Murphy's Law was such, it was a different vibe. It was more of a fun vibe. The, yeah, like the, Super Touch were very posy, like, you know, and like, it wasn't like, like Raw Deal was brutal. Like Raw Deal was like fucking, yeah, like, let's go. You know what I mean? And Murphy's Law is this fun vibe. Like Jimmy is hilarious. I was amazed by him. Like just amazed by him. Yeah. Like I couldn't believe how funny he was. He's charismatic. really like, you know, we talked to him on If I Ruled the World and he was just so I don't know, he's so great and like to see him yeah. to see him at AMH out by me and then also see him open up for the Misfits at you know Madison Square oh, yeah. or wherever yeah. I don't remember where it was. Um so time goes on and along the way you get influenced to what just start you know join a band like where where does the actual point where like John is like fuck it I want to sing. Well, the thing is, like, I, I just wanted to go to as many shows as possible so I could dance and, like, jump off the stage. And that was, like, and get the mic. Like, that was the thing. Like, to fight to get the mic in the crowd, you know, when Gorilla Biscuits passed the mic, you want to be one of the people to get that mic. For sure. And so that first year, uh, which was my senior year of high school, I would go to as many shows as possible. Lamore would have a smattering of shows. Like, uh, I think MP played like a metal show there. We all went to see that. So like my life revolved around Sundays and like going to those matinees on Sundays. But at the time, I never, never thought I would be in a band. My brother Mike is in a band called Close Call where he's playing bass with uh, the lead guitarist is John Lamacchia from Candiria because he grew up in our neighborhood. You, you know him through kids, John Bebop. Um, and Mike's hardcore band's great. Like they're they're very stop and go, like traditional hardcore, but they got a good singer, they got good hooks. I can't remember if Mike was good on bass. I assume he was good. I don't know. <laughs> it's so long ago. So like like that's going on, and they're playing like little BS things here and there. So life is wonderful, everything's great. And then about I want to say early ninety, a friend of mine calls me up and says, "Hey, do you want to audition for Maximum Penalty?" And I was like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. Like, how is this even on the radar? Um, we had mutual friends. I didn't know Maximum Penalty. I did not know Joe Affey, who has been like my lifelong, like uh, my heterosexual life partner pretty much ever since. But I knew that um, Joe was from Brooklyn, which was a big deal. There weren't a lot of hardcore people from Brooklyn. And um, he was the only guy, I think, in the band from Brooklyn. And there was a circumstance where the singer was going away or going, going, he's got to, you know, it's not going to be around for a while and they want to keep playing. So I was like, this is amazing. So most people knew me like that. I was like a singer going to college or I was on the, you know, I just started to go to junior college and I was in theater programs and I was competing for, for vocal scholarships and stuff like that. And I was okay. I wasn't great, but I was good. Yeah, I was but you were better. always. The, I mean, if you were competing for vocal scholarships, I mean, like that's fucking like. Yeah, but I, I didn't even is, know that existed. Well, it was. It was like a. There were. There's a. It's. I don't know if it exists today, but it was a. Um, it was called the American College Theater Festival, uh, but at the time. But even I was a teenager. I was in a, a theater company that you had to audition with. You had to either sing, act, or dance, and I always felt like my station in life was I was going to be like a game show host or something. Like I was. Like I never like I, nuns. I, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, like nuns told me like when I was in sixth or seventh grade, I just was impersonate like Bill Murray from Saturday Night Live or or Eddie Murphy from Saturday Night Live. It was just no Richard. I just Dawson. wanted. To, 
Yeah, no, not Richard Dawson because he kissed people, and I thought that was weird to kiss people you don't oh, know. Like well. when I was a kid. <laughs> well, now it's like you know. Yeah, now. But also I'm Italian. We kiss everybody. Yeah. So oh, like, you're like there's no big deal. <laughs> yeah, there's no big deal. So I get this phone call, and I'm I'm 19. I'm living with my parents, and my brother Mike is like, "Holy shit! Holy shit!" So I I learned the demo, and at the time this comp came out like a little before that called um, "Where the Wild Things Are." unbelievable hardcore comp maybe like in the annals of history just a fucking beast of a compilation mp's got two good songs on there outburst Shit, Tara's yeah. on there outburst um, dude outburst i think kicked that off yeah honest. yeah i had joe on and and since then me and joe are, are pretty cool yeah um, joe's a good guy i yeah, know man, joe I like joe a lot but uh dude when that thing came out beast just a beast because revelation records had all the straight edge bands but to see like paul barra stretched out like you know with his you know like on the ground and like you know it's just it's got sheer terror it's got maximum penalty it's got raw deal on here and this is before the killing time album came out before they were killing time so i get um this mp thing comes up they're rehearsing at a studio called ace london which would come back again in my life many times um uh, in uh, marine park brooklyn owned by a great guy named joe bravo instrumental guy in a lot of big bands, you know, Life of Agony, Biohazard, Typo, instrumental guy. Um, he owned a studio. He was in a metal band called Big Bad Wolf. And Joe was a good looking guy with long hair who owned a studio. I mean, can you imagine yeah. you know, how cool he was? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, he was like in a successful local band. He owned a studio where cool people rehearsed. So I get, I get to talk to Joe Affy on the phone and he's very like, you know, standoffish with me because he doesn't know me and he's like very gruff. But I know the songs. I learned like their full demo and I learned the two songs off the comp. So I come in and I think it was like a, a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. And I don't even know who's in the band, but everybody that I thought was in the band from the time I had seen them the previous times, not a single person other than Joe was in the band at this point. It was all different people. And uh, two of them were in a band uh, from Brooklyn that was a very big hardcore band to people in Brooklyn called Social Disorder. Okay. And uh, which was like a very, very instrumental band to a lot of people. They influenced a lot of people. Uh, they were the only like one of the only hardcore bands from Brooklyn at the time. So but MP is, you know, doing pretty good. I mean, they're like a mid-level size hardcore band uh, at a time where there's, you know, there's regular shows. So I go in. I'm a mess. I'm growing a beard because I'm doing this play at my college Man, you, and, you uh, are all about, yeah, wow, growing a beard yeah. for a play. That's great. I'll send you the picture. I have the picture somewhere. I think it's on the Lament um, uh, Facebook group. Okay, it's, cool. It's a picture we took from the first show. So, I'm, and my voice is very high and like very, you know, and I'm in, you know, I'm a healthy, relatively young person at this yeah. point. <laughs> and I'm just, but I'm trying to, I'm, tr I'm doing Jimmy Williams songs. And Jimmy is like a hip hop influenced dude who happens to be black in the hard a lot of people especially fronting successful bands and you know that's not really something in my head at the time i just know that i'm a fan like you know and i want to do this so i do the show i do the show i do the the practice and the bass player at the time is a guy named mark sisto who was in uh one of the versions of breakdown among other bands but that was one of the bigger things he had done and uh so i'm talking to joe and mark because they kind of run the band and they're like, um, so we got a show coming up in a couple of weeks. We're playing with a uh, road deal at the anthrax. Uh, do you want to do the show? And I'm like, first of all, the anthrax is the big straight edge club in Connecticut that they've written books about. Um, it's a monster club that I've, that I've seen pictures of in fanzines. Yeah, for sure. And R raw deal is like my favorite hardcore band. And I was like, 
so I'm like in the band and like, well, you're kind of in the bands, you know, <laughs> it yeah, was like yeah. this weird, you know, and they're only a little bit older than me. They're like 20 and I'm 19. But at that point, you know, they might as well have been 50. Yeah. It, it made a difference back then for sure. It made a difference. You know, there, Mark was 21 or maybe even 22 at the time. And Nikki and Richie, uh, uh, the other guys in the band, they were a little bit older <laughs> and I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm going to do this fucking show. Did like you have, did you feel like that ability, like, like after that practice, did you feel like, okay, I could definitely do this? Well, the thing is I wasn't in any bands. Like, so it wasn't even like, it was, I was just like some kid that was friends with people in other bands. Like other people recommended me because they knew I could sing in real life. Yeah. And they knew I was like a normal guy. They were like, uh, he's just like a hardcore guy. Like he's like a weird, normal, hardcore guy. Like, and I think they were just, you know, I don't know what was going on with them internally at the time, but they they knew I wasn't going to like, you know, be a problem. I wasn't going to be like some crazy dude who gets like, you know, gets in some kind of trouble. Would and you, would you say you were more like uh, uh, Sammy Hagar or Gary Sharon? I was probably Gary Sharon. Gary <laughs> Sharon. It's like the old thing. Like Sammy, you know, Sammy, Sammy's got some chops. Sammy knows what he's doing. Okay. But um, <laughs> so now I got this. Now I got this show going on at the Anthrax. Uh, I forget who was opening, but it was us and Killing Time. It was like four bands, and but and it's a Friday night. It's in Connecticut. It's in Norwalk, Connecticut. So now my first show ever is a huge show going out of state to play with one of my favorite hardcore bands in one of my favorite hardcore bands. Unbelievable, right? Oh. And I'm twenty. I'm twenty years old. It's February uh, of I guess ninety, and. I am over the moon. I got like 20 something people to drive up from Brooklyn to come to this show. Wow. Like, like I got maybe even more, like my wife, Imagine. this is a whole other story. My <laughs> wife is at this show. Oh, really? My wife is like 15. Yeah. My wife was my high school girlfriend, but we broke up for like 25 years and got back together like okay, I remember seven years that. ago. I remember, yeah. So I remember like, story, yeah. so now my wife is going, she's lying about, cause she's a lot younger than me. So she's like, all my Guido friends are driving up. They're driving my brother up some of the friends in the hardcore scene are driving up because people want to see this shit. And I am like, I pull into the parking lot of the, we pull into the parking lot and I just remember seeing, like, I don't know what to expect. And I see all these like BMWs and Mercedes in the Norwalk parking lot of the Anthrax. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be a very different crowd than what I'm used to in the Lower East Side. Yeah. Like, I just remember that the first thing that popped in my head was all the expensive cars. And I walk in that place and it has a distinct smell to it. And it's got graffiti everywhere. And it's got this huge long stage. And the big thing at the Anthrax, which is where all the Revelation bands really like cut their teeth and big hardcore bands, was that there was no bouncers. The stage is like this giant, long, wide open arena. So I, I got to get my shit together. And I remember I'm in the back dressing room. And there's like Killing Time brought like all these like alleyway crew people with them, like sick of it all and all these other people. And I don't know. And, and I'm just staring at all these people that I you know, like idolize, hoping that I don't embarrass myself. Right. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a show. And as soon as the band's setting up, I remember I'm pacing back and forth on the stage, trying to get ready, get myself psyched up. And all I could hear from the crowd is, where's Jimmy? Like over and oh, over. Oh, yeah. Again. That's fucking. Yeah. Yeah, over and over and over again. And MP had the coolest intro, which I think they still use. 
Um, it was awesome intro. It was just a badass intro. Because no, no, it's, I'm saying I was just to cut you off real quick. Because no, no one could send out a tweet back then that they had a new singer, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, people didn't know, and no. it was just like, yeah, and it was listed as MP. And here's this like weird guy with like Guido haircut and like Agnelli jeans and a Gap shirt on, like you know, with a weird beard, just singing Jimmy songs and like. You know, and it was, I don't remember if it was good or bad. I just remember it was like unbelievable. Like I never felt like that in my life. What was the intro? It was their, their intro. Like they had a very, like a, like a musical intro that okay. was really hot. Like everybody would get, like they knew how to get the crowd going with this intro Yeah. and uh, play the show. And after the show, everybody's great. Everything's cool. And I'm meeting people and I'm meeting people in other bands and it's like very awesome. So uh, the MP at the time, the other guys in the band, I think one or two of the guys weren't really that into me and they weren't really that into staying in the band or something. And I remember like thinking, well, I'm in a maximum penalty now. This is going to be great. I'm going to play shows like this all the time. This is going to be awesome. And like none of that was true. They actually had me come back again while they auditioned other people that for like a band practice that I actually was like helping to pay for because I thought I was in the band. Oh, man. Like, I was just like, yeah, I was just like, what did I do wrong? Like, I don't understand. Like, I thought I was great. Um, but that was like a temporary thing. And then, you know, Joe Affey of Maximum Penalty was like, listen, we're going to have to change the name. If you're going to stay in the band, we need to change the name. We need to write some new songs. We'll keep some of the songs, but we're going to have to change. Like, we can't, you can't like be the singer of Maximum Penalty because it's like Jimmy's band. And, and I was like, yeah, that's cool. So that's how that progressed into calling the band lament because him and mark sisto were writing very metal like songs they were watching hellraiser a lot and they were like writing uh, listening to prong and watching hellraiser a lot ah that'll so, do it yeah so now this band that's fronted by this really cool black dude in the hardcore scene called maximum penalty is going to progress into this more metal kind of band how, with some folk, you know, it, with me, I'm just fronting it. So like a 20, you know, like you, you basically, you know, like your ego is like high up there or kind of like, you know, like you feel good. Like when you, when you drop this or you get that, that first show and you mm. think that this is what it's going to be. Um, once they drop that on you, like, were you a little shook about it or you, were you looking forward to just doing something different? Well, the appeal was that I, like, I, I had just jumped like eight rugs, like eight rugs yeah, in yeah. The, 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 the chain. Yep. And I remember when they said they were going to change the name, um, I was kind of bummed because I was like, oh, like, or is anybody going to give a shit? Okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah, in yeah, my yeah. mind, but the material like that Joe was writing was so different and it was so not like, it was just different. It wasn't like maximum penalty. It didn't have that like hip hop overture to it. Like, you know what I mean? It was metal and I loved metal and Joe loved metal. And I think he had long hair at the time. And we ended up getting Eric Morgan uh, to play bass, who was like a sick bass player. I think he plays in a band with Sal from Typo now, from The Life of Agony. Um, I forget, Pale Horse Named Death. Um, he went to school with Joe. I knew him when I was like a young metalhead. And we get this drummer who had played in Social D, uh, who since passed away, this guy Jay Osberger, who was playing drums. And um, the band got very metal. Like we kept some MP stuff since MP wasn't really a thing. So we busted those songs out, but then we really tried to push the name with local shows. So we go back to the Anthrax in May and it's Killing Time and Sub-Zero and Lament now. And um, very different vibe because now I feel like I got my energy up and I know what I'm doing. 
and I got to shave my beard and I got like a really cool haircut and I'm wearing like a bad trip t-shirt and I'm just like, you, yeah, the band's called, we had, this, uh, the band's called the men. Like, you know, what I mean? were <laughs> like, you writing like, so, so, I mean, for someone who's never been in a band and you were singing, um, you know, someone else's songs the first time around, um, when they're writing the music, are you writing the melody and the lyrics to this or did, did they do that for you for the time being? As no, well? no, Joe, Joe and Mark were writing most of that stuff because okay. they had that stuff on deck and okay. I think they had, you know, had whatever happened with Jimmy not happened, I don't know what they would have done because they ended up keeping Mark came back into the fold. And, and, you know, it was like one of these weird things where I think Joe was had like a metal side in his music that he wanted to put out. And he had like a more hardcore oriented riffs better for Jimmy. I wasn't writing anything. Okay. I was, I was writing nothing at this point, no melodies, no nothing. They did, were, did um, you they were giving to? it to me. I did, but I didn't, I didn't have the credibility to bring it to the, to the table. Like I, I needed to kind of earn the credibility and eventually I would write some stuff and some of the early stuff where it was terrible, but <laughs> I mean, that's the way it goes. <laughs> write it. I had to write the bad stuff. Like it was yeah. bad. Like it you never made to. it to yeah, even yeah. like the lament records at all. Like yeah. by the time the lament album came up, I wrote like most of the lyrics and most of the melodies for by the time lament got to a full length album. So this is like now 90, 91 and now lament get to put out a record, uh, a seven inch, which was a big deal at the time. Cause you went from demos to seven inches. Absolutely. Yeah. So we went from demos to seven inches and we uh, recorded um, for a label called Inner Journey, which is a notoriously well-known label to a lot of people because the first things they put out were Clutch, uh, Sub-Zero and like Lament. These were like, and they put out something else that was pretty big, but from a guy from uh, Rob Fish, I think his name is, he's in um, that uh, Krishna band. Okay. Oh, it's 108. I think okay. he sings for 108, but he had another called like Hard Response or some shit like that. Like I'm messing up the name. But this label out of Delaware, you know, because we were playing like some Pennsylvania type shows and state shows. This is like 91. They they put out an EP. Um, we called it Drowning Room. And it was like a four song EP. And, you know, uh, one of the songs, unfortunately, was still an MP song, which would get recycled later on again. Uh, a song called I'll Save You, which is a pretty big MP song. But we were, you know, we were like more of like a metal kind of band. I mean, we were, you know, like a metal hardcore. You know what I mean? Um you know, we could play with metal shows and we could play with hardcore shows. Yeah. And uh, I mean, what, what were you guys listening to back then? You know, that the, the... prong was a big deal. Okay. Prong. Uh, I think prong just got signed to a major label. Uh, Beg to differ by prong was very instrumental in that lament EP that came out in 91. Okay. Um, that was a big thing. Leeway prong. Um, I think there was like some cool records by Testament that might've been out at that point. That, and that was, uh, that was like, the year punk broke too. I mean, for the most part, like, yeah, I, I don't know if, if obviously like the nevermind permeated that world that you guys were in, but I know oh, it did. Yeah. It like changed so much. I remember, you know? Yeah. I mean, and it was a good time to even be like in a band, like people in the hardcore scene were shitting on Nirvana. Um, but like, you know, I, I mean, I, I think in a re retrospective looking at it now, I don't know that they would do that today. I think at the time it just, because they were mainstream, like hardcore was still very dug in underground at this point. Um, and that was about to change because Nirvana kind of opened the doors for like gangster rap and <laughs> yeah. like yeah. industrial music. Like, cause, and, and you have to remember, I'm like a 21 year old person. So it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to the limelight. I'm going to the palladium. I'm going to see bands like Meat Beat Manifesto wow. and Thrill Throw Kill Cult. Throwback. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to uh, Pearl Jam opening for the Chili Peppers with the Pumpkins on that tour when, when uh, uh, Pumpkins were on Siamese Dream. Like, I'm going to the first, uh, the second Lollapalooza I was at. 
I'm going to see Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Like I'm all over the place. Like I, you saw Ned's back then. I saw them twice. I saw them open for Jesus Jones and they at the Academy, and then they came back and headlined, and they were fucking amazing. I love Um, I love the Academy. uh, Who was EMF? I saw EMF. Um, I saw a lot of people. Jesus, I mean, this is just. But I'm also, but I'm in a hardcore band too, and I'm playing hardcore shows. Like you know, I'm I'm actively at Lamore. You know, playing shows there, going to shows there. Were you like one of the well, only people that seemed to be like super accepting of other styles like that around you, or were there others? Yeah, but I but I was like one of the only people in college. Like, you know what I mean? Like, most of my friends were not in college, okay. and I was only in junior college, and I was considered like a big dorky geek. Like, if you would have thought I was in Columbia, like most of my friends were not in school. The ones that were, most of my friends were working, so they had like real jobs, or they were like you know not doing much. They were just like, kind of hanging out. And also like my, like my background in the hardcore scene is very like low key. Like, you know, my family is basically people that were fans that were in bands. Like yeah. we didn't have any nefarious, you know, there's no crazy stories. We're not beating people up. We're not getting arrested. We're not on drugs. We're just, we're kind of like nerds who like hardcore and we're like comic book nerds and wrestling nerds who liked hardcore music, who stepped in shit. And we're surrounded by like all these hardcore people who are so legitimate like, you know what I mean? Yeah, that kind of legitimizes us. And by this time, did uh, Mike, when, when did Confusion start? Confusion had already started. So Confusion were playing when Lament was playing. Okay. And Confusion were doing great. My brother Mark was very, he was like, you know, grade school. Like he was like a kid kid. Uh, Kevin is not booking bands yet, but he's like a big metal head, you know, guy like going to metal shows and doing like, you know, doing like A&R stuff for bands I, like Spray Eagle. I, I, loved, yeah, exactly. I loved his his episode on this is hardcore podcast. Cause like yeah. a lot of the shit he mentioned when he said spread Eagle and warrior solo, I was like, those are the two most random things that I remember. You know, it just made me like have a flashback to being like a young kid flipping through like hit parader or something, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, Well, you had, well, well, you're from the Island, but they had the East coast rocker, which was a newspaper that I thought came out of long Island, but I could be wrong. That's how you knew what shows were going on. And then you also had the village voice. So yeah. you had those two things that came out during the week to let you know what shows were going on. You know, you're a young person. You want to meet people. You're listening to different music. But but the hardcore scene was definitely changing at that point. Like there was going to be a very sharp turn that was going to happen in the early 90s in hardcore, which I didn't really see coming because I just either wasn't paying attention. So, you know, this is like the early 90s. We're doing the lament thing. Joe goes back to Maximum Penalty, breaks up the band. And I think like my life is over at like 21. Like, I'm like, oh, I guess it's over now. I have nothing. Go back to and, theater. Yeah, I'm like, I guess, yeah, I can go back to theater. So I was doing like a college alt rock band with my friends at college, which was actually pretty good, but it was very much like grungy. Like it was like, like grunge lyrics. And it was like, you know, we just heard 10, like, you know, so now everything's going to sound like the Pearl Jam's 10. Yeah. Um, I was doing that, like kind of dejected. And um, I guess like within a year of doing that, Joe, who I wasn't as close with at that point, calls me up again and was like, well, let's do the band again. And I'm like, oh, you know, I guess. And he's like, yeah, but I don't want to do any of the old material. I want to write all new material and I want to do it with other people. So I was like, okay, I want to write songs. I want to write this time. So this is like 93. And we get a bass player from a band called uh, Machine, which was a big Lamore metal band this guy jeff mackey unbelievable bass player like geezer butler of 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 new york like sick sick bass player 
and we get uh, Max Capshaw, who was in uh, Sick of It All for like five seconds. That was like, and he was in some other bands, but he was in Sick of It All for maybe like, he's in uh, one of the early Sick of It All videos playing uh, drums. That's five seconds more than I was in, so. Right, but that's what, but also Sick of It All is like the, you know, even at that time, I'm a huge, like oh, Mark and a huge absolutely. fan. You said 93? Huge fan. Like, yeah. 93 was like my favorite album. Like Scratch the Surface was like. And this yeah, is for I, me, I, like I was never, I, I'm not like a hardcore guy. I, I never, yeah. like I was like on the outskirts, you know, uh, and scratch yeah. the surface and like, you know, um, I'm like, once just I heard look that, around. yeah, I was yeah. just like, what yeah. the fuck? I'm like, this is like, that was the album. So, oh, that was a huge deal. So we get this band. So now we're writing all these new songs. We, we demo some songs and, um, it's very heavy. It's very metal, but I'm writing everything. I'm writing all the lyrics for the most part. That's why I'm writing all the melodies. Was that, and, was that an you know, easy thing as, as time went on? Because like, you're so good, like later on with your bands, as far as melody that I just, I'm trying to figure out where that, where that started. I, I, I think it's subconscious. It came from trying to keep up with Joe, like Joe, like to me, like it's, I'm very biased when it comes to talking about Joe, but, um, but like on any, like I've spent so much intimate time with this human being, um, not even just in bands with him, but in like life, but mostly revolving his craft. And he was just so in tune with his sound and his tone and his ability. Like, you know, he's got such confidence. He doesn't make mistakes. He's like, it's just crazy. And I just want to kind of keep up with him. So it's like, I want to, I, I, I'm not even on any level of what I can do with what he can do with his ability. I'm not even, I don't observe the same conversation. That's how good he is though. Is, That's the problem is, is that he's that good. Is he one of those people just like you that, that, that takes influence from like different places? Yeah, that, well, that's what I said. He was like a guy who grew up on like classic rock and then got into things like Black Sabbath and Maiden and Priest and brought that into this hardcore environment. Like Joe was one of the few people in the hardcore scene I saw that had long hair. Okay. Like, and it seems like a silly thing to say, but this is like in the 80s. Like he was just so much his own person. Like I was just in such awe of this guy. Um, like he was like only a year older than me, but like I knew that he had changed my life. Like had he not allowed me to go into this world, I would not, I would just be some idiot in the back. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? And I just, and I didn't want to go back to being So yeah, that. I mean, like he changed the trajectory of your life basically. For, for life. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And like, you know, he turned 50 last year and I wrote this like really nice thing about him. Um, but I really wanted to get, put him over as a guitar player more than a person, because I feel like he's never in these conversations of like these amazing, like New York hardcore guitar players that don't get a lot of credit. And I think he should be, but so then we're writing this, uh, we're writing what would become an album for a label called, um, too damn hype, which had put out a magazine and a comp and a bunch of comps that a lot of cool bands were on. And the cool thing about too damn hype was they were very diverse hardcore label. They were, they were fucking with like. Uh, a band called Starkweather. I don't know if you're familiar with them. No, just unbelievable. Unbe I can't even describe them musically. I, it's, it's, it's like it's like if a nightmare was a band, like you know, playing <laughs> music. They were this brutal, nerdy band from Pennsylvania uh, with a girl bass player, um, who uh, Michelle, I should point out, is married to Mike from All Out War, um, who's an old friend of mine. A great band. I'm sure you've heard of them. Yep. Um, Mike and the, they're just like two of the best people ever. I love them. I've known them for decades. And they came, they, we sort of discovered them through this label and we would have them come and play places like the crazy country club. They would drive out to play the singer. Remy, uh, Rennie, uh, Resmini 
was a short, very unassuming, shy guy who had like literally when he opened his mouth, hell just came out of his mouth. I mean, it was just you have to hear this band. I can't I'm not even doing them remotely. I can't compare them to anything. They're not hardcore. They're not metal. They were in a class by themselves. And I wanted to be fucking with bands like that because I was in such awe of him. And they were also friends with, um, if you're familiar with Only Living Witness. No. They're from Boston. Maybe one of the best singers in the hardcore scene of all time, a guy named uh, Jonah Jenkins. Craig um, uh, Silverman, who is in Agnostic Front, who's been in Agnostic Front for a long time. He, that's his band. Okay. Uh, with Jonah was Only Living Witness. So I'm meeting like these people like Starkweather and Only Living Witness and All Out War and Stigmata and all these like post-hardcore kind of bands, but not really post-hardcore, more metal influence bands and Crisis. And I'm playing like in that world now and I'm loving it and it's great. And I think this is going to be a big thing. We put the record out. We have the record release party at uh, Castle Heights in, I guess, 94 or 95. Was Kevin booked there by then? Yeah, Kevin was booking there full time. Uh, Mike's got uh, Mike at this point may have started in Human. I think it may have started around that time, or it was about to start. Yeah, I think he he said ninety five. I think he said for Inhuman. Yeah, this is like Inhuman's okay. about to start, and um, I'm like, you know, I think this is going to be. I think the record's going to do great. I'm getting to do some cool shows. I'm getting to do some like, you know some decent things like we're going out of state and we have a label that's really into us. Did, we like did, the label. did you like, even at this point was being like a touring musician, like something that you thought of, or was it just like something you just did on the weekends? It was still something to do on the weekends because hardcore wasn't really a touring industry. Okay. Like you go to Europe, you don't go to California. Like, you know what I mean? It was like, you could play DC, Philly, Pennsylvania, Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, play them, play them, play them, play them, play them. But no one's asking you to go to like Michigan. No one's asking you to go to Arizona. You could probably parlay this to go to Japan. And that was one of the things we were trying to do. We were trying to get to Europe, you know, maybe with other bands on the label. Um, Sub-Zero's on the label. Sub-Zero had, we had done a previous record uh, when we were on a label with Sub-Zero before. Sub-Zero's becoming a pretty big band. And bands that I was friends with, like Marauder, um, at this point are like a full-fledged band. Um, you know, the old school, old version of Marauder. Uh, 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 Demise was a big man from Queens we were playing with. My brother had Confusion, you know. So I, uh, Dark Side, like these bands were all like, they were there. We had people to play with. We had no shortage of people to play with. And because Lament had the maximum penalty name behind it, and we were always getting on a label, we were kind of pushed to the top of the pecking order. There was so many bands, but, you know, success was very was the what you would consider success for a band was just getting to play like Lamore or cbs or put on to open for somebody yeah absolutely. like you know yeah that was success yeah, you know I, absolutely that was like i i often said with my band uh we we would this was like our goal we're like if we get to play irving plaza once mm. That and, sounds like my goal. And we open up for Sam I Am, like, that's it. Like, we'll be good. <laughs> that was always, like, the goal, which, I mean, they never played Irving Plaza, so that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think they did. But the thing was, like, even then, like, as I look back on it, like, we were, yeah, we were getting to open some shows, like, for some, like, Sheer Terror or whatever. And I think we opened for, like, Rest in Pieces. And we, but we, like, we weren't, we were spending more time playing locally with bands we were friends with than we were opening for bigger people. And there was like a couple of incidences around that time. One of them is actually kind of a really funny story. And I'm going to tell it, even though I really wanted to 
check with this person before I told the story, but I'm just going to tell because it's not a bad reflection on them at all. But at the time, Lament was getting some interest. The guy who owned Lamore's son, this guy, Mike Jr., was really into Lament. Like he liked the band and he was going to put us on a show uh, that would turn out to be a pretty big show for us. That was a very notorious show. But there was also another incident where uh, Howie Abrams, who worked for Roadrunner at the time, liked the band for like a hot second and reached out to me. And we were on a show with Dog Eat Dog. Uh, we played Bond Street Cafe with Confusion and a whole bunch of other bands, maybe Dark Side. And <laughs> Howie's a great guy. I don't know him very well at all. But we uh, you know who he is because he was signing like all these yeah, bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, for sure. And I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. And Howie, I swear to God, please forgive me for telling the story because I'm sure you don't remember it. <laughs> but he had he had said, I'm going to come see you guys play that show that Doug Eat Dog is playing because that was one of his bands. Yeah. So Lament was not like it was a bit of a sloppy mess. Like there was it wasn't like some well-oiled machine. It was we had good songs. Um, you know, we, we we did well when we played, but you know, it wasn't like so. Like again, it was not this big well well machine. So we go to play that show, and the show is a little bit of a slap fest. And he's trying, I guess, him or somebody with him is trying to get Dog Eat Dog to go on earlier because the show is not very good. And my brother's band was going to close it, and he was trying to switch spots with Confusion. And my brother is like arguing with them outside, saying, "No, you guys are on the on the big label. You guys should close the show." So I'm like, oh, wow, like this is not going well at all. So then I go talk to Howie and I was like, yeah, what's up, man? He was like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. I thought the band was bigger than this, mm-hmm. right? Like I just, <laughs> I assumed. And then I turned to him without skipping a beat and I say to him and I go, well, isn't that your job? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And this is me at like 22, like, you know, and now here's this guy who would go and have this amazing career in the music business. And then there's me being a mouthy dick. Now I I privately hated this guy for like 20 years because of oh, that's so funny. like I never, like I never, and it's so because I love him. He's a wonderful yeah, guy. He's so he's cool. Pretty, he really I, is a great man. I, I only met him I would once. love <laughs> him to hear that story. He knows my brothers pretty well. Like he knows us. Like, I don't know if he remembers that, but I was so secretly offended by that, which would be the beginning of many bad like decisions. Like I took that so personal that my band was not good enough to get signed to Roadrunner at the time was signing all these big bands. But I get it. I mean, like, I, it makes sense now. But at the time, like, he offended me. Like, I was offended by this guy. Like, who is this guy? Yeah. You know what I mean? To tell me this in 94. Um, so that was one of the big, big, big factors that really, like, like in my mind, that fucked me up. But there was a show when Lamore was closing. We got asked to play with Life of Agony, who I did not like uh, for many reasons. But going back to Crazy Country Club, have you ever heard of the Crazy Country Club? No, no, no. This is all all news to me. So keep going. <laughs> so there was this bar in uh, Bay Ridge, Bensonhurst border uh, called it was a comedy club called the Crazy Country Club. Now, I want to spell the Crazy Country Club. But it was KKK. Oh, that was man. part of the joke. Crazy Country Club. Warm beer, lousy food. That was the tagline of this place. Yeah. Somewhere in the 80s, they decided on weekend Thursday nights, weekday nights, they would let us have hardcore shows there. So we were booking, like we were getting Candiria, not Candiria, like Raging Angel, because they were called Raging Angel at the time. So you would have like Raging Angel playing there, um, you know, Confusion playing there, Patterns, which was the precursor band that John LaMachia was in, uh, to a band called Dead Air that I think you'd really like if you ever heard. They were like a very musical band that he was in, that I think he sang in at that time. But we, it was like, a, it was like you got, we got to have shows there. And 
there was this like version of the hardcore scene that was very connected to the city through people through like hanging out at CBs that we knew in like Queens and Manhattan. And then there was like this Bay Ridge hardcore scene of people specifically from like that side of Brooklyn. We were from Sheepshead Bay, the other side of Brooklyn. And it was bands like Life of Agony and Nobody's Perfect. And, you know, nothing, there was nothing wrong with any of these guys. But we kind of had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder because we were the people that were going to the shows in Manhattan, like the real hardcore shows. And they were going to like the Lamour hardcore shows. Okay. It was very weird. Like, I know it sounds so silly. No, no, it, like, sounds, it sounds silly. But like back then, the, the, like, it, may, it meant something. Yeah. Like, it meant something. Yeah. We, so, I've, I have, it's the same thing. We all have that, that story where we look back 20 years later and we're like, yeah, that was stupid. But that's 30. Just, yeah, well, yeah, that's just the years. way it was. So, yeah, wh- so, so we never, we never really like, they didn't really get the same like respect like, like we got because we were friends with people in the city or we knew bands in the city. So, Life of Agony was one of those bands. And, um, I can, I, I it's I, again, it sounds very petty, but Life of Agony basically were part of that Lamour, Bay Ridge, Mill Basin, like hardcore scene not really what we considered the real hardcore scene. So we never really gave them the respect that, like, you know, and they never really gave it back to us. It wasn't until there was like an incident right before they kind of got signed where someone in their band, uh, which was, I'm going to refer to Keith Caputo as Keith Caputo because I don't know Mina. I've never met Keith since he's transitioned. I can't speak on anything that Mina as a human being, but I could speak about the person that was Keith Caputo at the time. Sure. Keith, Keith Caputo had a terrible reputation. He was a bit of a, he was a really tiny guy, but he was a big, like pain in the ass. Like he was like, he was like a troublemaker. He hit somebody that we were friends with at a time where you, you probably did not want to do that. And it was decreed that he was going to get like the shit kicked out of him for this. Sure. And a guy named uh, Giovanni, uh, who was a photographer for like skateboard magazines, was friends with everybody, called me up and said, hey, Joey Zampella wants to talk to you. Joey Z from Life of Agony. And I was like, oh, Jesus, I know what this is about. Now, I was not somebody that beat people up. I'm never going to be remembered as that person. But I was certainly around a lot of people that were. Oh, so yeah, I was like, same, same, I was the same guy with that, me. Yeah. So you would go to me to kind of get me to get the people to not beat you up. That was kind of, and, and this is a pattern that would follow me later on in life. So basically, uh, the guitarist from Life Agony, I think they just got signed Roadrunner or they just got signed. And I'm already annoyed about that. <laughs> so he gets he gets me on the phone and he's like being a sweetheart. He's being like a real and he goes, listen, I I, I know if you brought I know your brother, you know, um, I know like, you know, I know that I can talk to you. And I go, listen, man, I was like, you know, Keith is a fucking jerk off. I was like, he goes, yeah, he's my cousin, you know what I'm saying? He's had a hard life. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, the people that are gonna beat him up have probably had a hard life. Like I remember just having that kind of conversation with him. And you, I had you, to, you were not backing off, huh? Well, I did because I started to feel bad. Okay. Because that, so then I was, because Giovanni um, was getting in my ear. And this is another person who would be instrumental in my life in a weird way. He was like, you know, can you just talk to these guys? Like, talk, talk to these guys. So I, I kind of, you know, I kind of get it squashed. But uh, more important, this guy, Les, who I'm hanging, a big guy in the hardcore scene, who's in a band called uh, Patterns. Uh, he was who I was a roommate of at the time. He got it squashed, and he was like he was like the well-known Brooklyn guy in the hardcore scene. I was just his dopey, you know, friend. Like you know what I mean. So then we run into Joey at a hardcore show at Lemoor, and he gives me a big hug, and he gives Les a big hug. He goes, "Dude, I really appreciate that." I go, "No, man, that's cool." I go, "Don't. It's fine. It's let's let's just leave it alone. It's not a big deal. Um, you know, whatever. It's cool." Um, he had my he had our house number on 29th Street, 
because a bunch of us all lived in the same house. So I guess a couple of weeks go by or whatever, and um, they're, they're shooting the video for Through and Through. And he was like, they had just recorded the album and they're shooting the video and the album's about to come out or whatever. And um, he calls us up that morning and says, can you guys please come to the video shoot? And I'm in lament at the time. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'll tell you what, after I make a video for my band, then I'll be in other people's videos. But until I make a, this is a swear to God I said this. I said, until I make a video, I'm not going to be in anybody else's video. I'm going to wait till I can make my own video. Back when videos but, cost like a zillion dollars to make. Yeah. So they, they end up, you know, shooting the video on the Brooklyn Bridge. My brother Mike ends up going and the album comes out and um, I, I'm thanked on the album, which is very weird because like I don't like the band and I'm not really friends with them. But it says John and Les. And I know that's me and Les. There's nobody else named Les. It's us. And but my friends are really into the record. They're really into the band. And I'm still like, I can't separate my hatred of Keith from this at all. We fast forward and now Lamore is closing. And they're going to be one of the last three bands to play there. They're having three final shows. And one of them is Typo Headlining. One of them is Biohazard. And one of them is Life of Agony. Well, I get asked to open for them at that final show. Okay. And it's uh and it's a big deal it's like a sold out show it's the end of like the lamore era and we're about our well, record had just come out and we're about to do um some some press for the record which existed of like doing like two radio interviews like doing like crucial chaos and doing um sou i'm doing sou that sunday and this show is on like a saturday so it's shelter life of agony and lament at lamore right this is a fucking huge show shelter did not become a big they didn't get signed yet to roadrunner and um, we do that. And uh, it's great. It's fun. My brother, Mark, is now a little kid diving and moshing at the hardcore scene at like 11, 12 years old, 13 years old, not even. And it's awesome. And I'm feeling like we're, we, we got, we're doing really well. While we're at that show, um, an ambulance pulls up <laughs> and I'm not paying. I'm drunk outside. I'm, I'm drunk a lot at that point. And the kid gets taken out, literally gushing blood from his nose and his mouth and head thing on. This is during Life of Agony set. And I don't know anything about this. Like, I'm outside with all my friends. Like, we really don't know what happened. And we come to find out that a bouncer pushed a kid off of the stage. The kid cracked his head open and dies. Oh, my God. Very famous story. Like, it was all over the news. It was in the paper. I was not. So I go on. I'm on. Uh, uh, you know, WSOU, obviously, right? Seton Hall, yeah, the radio. Yeah, they yeah, have yeah. The, yeah. So I'm doing a radio interview on there the next day with Joe, and we're, we're promoting the album. And we just played the show at Life of Agony. And um, I think we have some shows coming up. Like we have like a weekend we're doing with Sub Zero or something. I don't know. And somebody at, uh, somebody at SOU is asking me about violence at shows. And I'm just like, yeah, the shows are getting a lot more violent. I'm not going to say they're not. They're getting pretty violent. But you know what? I don't think the band's responsible. Like, I mean, how could you? And I, I know nothing about any of this. And neither does the SOU person doing the interview. And um, the next day, I think it was in the Post and the Daily News. I'm at my deli that I'm working at. My dad calls me oh. and says, did you see you're in the paper? <laughs> oh, my God. And I'm like, no. <laughs> like, he goes, that show you played, the kid died. A kid, like a kid from Jersey died oh. at that show. And they mention all the bands and they, they're not making a distinction between like, they just said the show, this is who played the show, whoever the opening band was, Lament, the, the bands were of Life of Agony, Shelter, Lament, blah, blah. So now I just, I, I'm getting a little nervous because I'm like, oh shit. So my father is like, you should find out like what's going on with this because you could get in a lot of trouble. Like you could get sued. 
you know. And uh, that week, the Geraldo Rivero show calls my parents' house, thinking oh, I still live with my parents. That is, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and they ask, they ask if I want to come on the show because my band was on the show. Yeah. And do I want to come and do uh, a panel with other people about like violence and music? And my father was like, absolutely not. Do not do this. Don't even respond. My father like runs interference for this. Now, funny thing, fast forward, they, they taped this show and they couldn't get anybody like from New York or whatever to do the, the panel. So they get this unknown musician from Florida called Marilyn Manson to do it. Wow. And he's on there talking about violence at shows. And I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, this guy wasn't even at the show. Was he Brian so, yeah, Warner or, or Marilyn? No, he was Marilyn Manson. He was, him and Twiggy did it. They were in full gear. This is 1994 or 95. Okay. Yeah, the record. And, the first record. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Um, so that was like, th- that was going on in the hardcore scene at the time. But I'm just like, man, I was just like, holy fuck. And I did, was like, did you want so to the, do it? I did want to do it, but I was probably, if I did it, it would have been a huge mistake. My father was just worried that every, there was, so the family sued, but the, but the, but the, the, the district attorney filed attempted murder charges against the bouncer. Wow. The bouncer went up for murder. This is all famous shit. Like people still talk about this to this day. So I have that show on videotape somewhere. And I just remember my dad being very litigious about the whole thing. Like he was just like, don't tell anybody you have the show on video. And I was like, but I only have my set on video. Like, I don't even have like anything else. Yeah. Like he didn't die during my show. The kid probably doesn't know who the fuck I am. Like this poor bastard, this kid got pushed off the stage by the bouncer, cracked his head open, bled to death, like, like hemorrhaged and died. So that was like, that was like what was going on in the hardcore scene for me at the time. So it's like, I can't like the, the I'm trying to get the band to do more things. And I have a friend at MTV who got lament on some MTV stuff musically. Um, he produced, yeah, my friend Gil Cologne, he produced MTV Sports. I don't know if you remember that or you too young, but come on. Dan Cortez. Oh, I don't know. Well, he produced that. So we were on that show. Um, he also got us on a bumper, like what they call a bumper. Do you yeah, know what a bumper yeah, yeah, is? Of course, yeah. So one of the songs from the Levitate Lament album, uh, and music from that, none of my lyrics, by the way, perfectly, nothing I sing is on any of this stuff, but the music was a bumper for something, maybe like a VMAs or. It might have been the MTV Movie Awards. Yeah, bumpers are but, great. Anytime I hear bumpers like, are great. Stern, yeah. Stern would play like quicksand, and I'm like, who the fuck used this as a bumper? Yeah, I heard quicksand on an NBA playoff bumper a bunch of years ago, <laughs> and I was like, holy shit! So there was a bumper for that, and then Dean Kane. Do you know who Dean Kane is? Of course. Dean Kane was was trying to do a a ripoff of MTV Sports for ABC because he had a hit ABC show. Yep. So Dean Kane did an extreme sports special where they had two lament songs. In the extreme sports special with Dean Kane, um, which was I was very proud of. Um, but what, what are but those was, checks like now? I don't talk about that. We signed them away for free. Like we oh, okay, them okay, okay. Free. <laughs> so they were all and it was music and it was Dean Kane. Like he was, I think he jumped out of an airplane with Ian Zaring or some shit. I don't even know. Like it was something so whack. But I was just like, yeah, we'll take it. Like this is great. Like you know what I mean? Like whatever, whatever is going on. But then like even like you get like to this plateau and then like clubs start closing and the hardcore scene starts changing like on a dime and like bands I didn't really like, like life of agony and biohazard are like these huge bands. now. Huge. And like, and I am very publicly talking about how much I don't like these people or I don't like these bands primarily because like, not because I'm jealous, but because like, 
they they didn't represent the hardcore scene to me. Like I I like I thought Leeway and Shatera and Raw Deal and Killing Time and Gorilla Biscuits were the hardcore scene. Like I didn't I didn't want the big thing to come out of the hardcore scene to be guys who weren't even at CBGBs. You know what I mean? So I, I, obviously I'm in the minority of that opinion. That was obviously not the proper opinion. But I just remember um, I remember seeing the Life of Agony video and then the Biohazard video, and I'm just thinking like, yeah, my I'm 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 not going to work out here. Like, I'm just like, because I'm not, everybody just kind of went with those bands and decided that these were going to be like the best bands ever. And we're going to be in all the videos and hang out and play and go see all like time it, it and in, famous. It, it like influenced that sound later on too. Um, and, and also specifically those two bands for Long Island as well, man, we would hang out in parking lots. And I tell you every car in 93, 94, had Life of Agony, River Runs Red, and Biohazards, mm-hmm. fucking Urban Discipline. Like, well, you know, it's funny. I, I gave I, I gave an interview to a fanzine. I can't remember the name of the fanzine, and I just bashed Biohazards death. Like, I just because I didn't. I had an incident with uh, Bobby. Like that. Like he tried to fight me, which again, I am just not somebody you try to fight. I'm just. It's like a pointless exercise. Like no one is ever going to mistake me for that person. Yeah. Something something happened, and Bobby was coming out of Lemoore with a friend, a guy we did not like, and a couple of girls. And one of the girls dropped her purse and all of her shit spilled. And I'm in a crowd of people that are way more nefarious and very dangerous, quite frankly, people that you don't want to have a problem with. Um, I'm not going to name drop, but they're just not like, they're not people that you want a problem with. Sure. And um, Bobby, the girl's purse spills, and we're like, oh, like we're laughing, and I'm giggling. I'm like high as fuck. I'm drunk. I'm outside of the moor in a car hot giant coat and a fucking like smoking a blunt with these dudes. And Bobby goes, "What did you say?" And one of the other dudes who it's like a pretty well known hardcore person, "You talking to me?" He goes, "Oh no, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you." And then he goes, "Who are you talking to me?" He goes, "No, him." And like he points to the whole crowd and singles me out while the, everyone else is laughing. <laughs> and I was just like. <laughs> I was like, yeah, he went down the list and said, oh, that dude, I can't say anything to yeah. that guy. I can't say anything to that guy. That guy, I'm going to say something to. And then before I could say anything, one of the people I'm with jumps in between us and pulls a hammer out and was like, who do you know you're fucking talking to? And like screaming at Bob and Bob has a pretty big band at this point. Right. Yeah. And uh, they walk away. And I was just like, God, that dude's a piece of shit. Right. You know what I mean? So I'm bashing them in magazines. I'm bashing them, but they're getting so popular. and like people I, who I thought didn't like them now like them a lot. Like, you know what I mean? And I was just like, Oh, this is not going to work for me. So fast forward <laughs> at the height of, at the height of all of this, my friend, Gil Cologne, MTV guy, one of my closest friends at that point in my life says, Hey, do you want to come? Um, White zombies uh, playing with Pantera and I got to go with Tommy Victor. I'm driving Tommy Victor there. Um, Cause he's friends with Tommy and I'm Tommy, I love prong. And I'm like, yeah, I've never met Prong before. I was, I've always wanted to meet Tommy. This is going to be great. Well, Tommy's living in Brooklyn. We're going to go with him. It's at the, um, uh, with the Hammerstein. And we're on the guest list, so don't worry. Blah, blah. I go, this is amazing. He goes, yeah, it's just one thing now. And I go, what? He goes, well, someone else is coming. And I was like, who, who's coming with? He goes, Billy from Biohazard. Now, I don't, I don't know Billy. I, I Billy was probably the only guy I kind of like. Him and Danny, I actually kind of like. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's cool. I've never said anything bad about Billy. And he was like, yeah, but I know you say a lot of stuff about the band and I don't know if he knows you or if he knows like you're like somebody who like talks shit, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but I, I, you know, I never said anything bad about Billy. I just thought Evan was a goof and I thought Bobby was a, was like a, was like a moron. So 
but that was it. Like I didn't, you know, I, I didn't like the band. So now I got to go to this thing like with him. And this is like all within that year time period. So we pick up Tommy and uh, I jump in the back seat. And Tommy's in the front seat with Gil, and Gil's got like a two seat cutlass or something. And then we go to pick up, we go to pick up Billy, right? And Billy gets in the car, and I'm just. And this is before their album came out. This is before the big record came out. Um, I'll tell you how I remember this. So Billy is like the nicest guy ever. Like he could not be nicer. And I'm just like almost a little embarrassed with how much shit I talk. And then Billy goes, "Hey, I brought the remixes of the album for Warner Brothers. If you guys want to hear it." And I'm like, "Oh Jesus! Like, is he really doing this?" And Tommy's like, "Yeah, put it on." So it's like I'm in the car now with like the producer from MTV, the guy from Prong, the guy from Biohazard, and me. Like, you know, like I'm sitting in the back of the car, and he's puts on, I guess, Tales from the Hard Side, which was called Carjack. And I just remember Billy's very involved explanation. This song's about a carjacking. Like, you know what I mean? I was just like, oh, so like he's this talking would... about like. Yeah, this is uh, what year is this? Uh, wow, that had to be '95. Yeah, this is not, this was a big year. So, and he has uh, it's freezing out, right? And he has like I'm freezing to death, and I got this giant coat on, and I know it's gonna be hot in Rose uh, Roseland. It was Roseland, not Hammerstein. I think it was Roseland, that and I'm sense. gonna check my coat. Yeah, it was Roseland, because the VIP, if you remember, Roseland was on the elevated side stage. Yep. So the VIP set, yeah. So. I go to get out of the car with Billy and he goes, uh, Hey man, I don't think you're going to want this, but I brought this anyway, but I don't think you're going to want it. And that's when I knew he knew like who I was. And I was like, what is it? And it was like a biohazard ski cap with stickers on it. Yeah. And I go, Oh, you didn't have to do that, man. He goes, yeah, I mean, you, know, you don't have to take it if you don't want to go Billy, man. I'm so, he was such a nice guy. He's yeah. such a nice guy. And I just remember feeling so uncomfortable because he couldn't have been a nicer guy. Right. Like he just couldn't have been a nicer guy. And, um, but I refused to put the hat on. So it was just like, I couldn't put the hat on. It's, it's so crazy. funny that you were so vocal about it. Because, I mean, you just don't seem like you're, I don't know, you know? Well, it rubbed me the wrong way because I did have that incident with Bobby. And then, like, I felt like my band was getting passed over for people, like, even though my band was, like, really in the hardcore scene by people that were not in the hardcore scene, you know? And I was like, well, you know, like what, like it was like jealousy. It was really like a jealousy thing, but I also didn't like them musically anyway. Like I remember River Runs Red and I'm like, I remember Joey calling me up going, we just got Keith singing lessons from the guy who teaches James Brown. It's like $150 an hour. This is like 1994. And I'm in, in my mind, I'm like, oh, so you guys bought like singing lessons for him and like you got, because I had always heard they were like rich kids, like, you know, which is really true. That's but. how much I paid for mine an hour. Yeah, it was in '94. Uh, no, oh no, yeah, '94. Yeah. Uh, so probably in like like 2000 something, 2000. Yeah, this was like '94, and I was like, oh, I didn't know Keith could sing, and like I just never really liked like Keith, and I didn't like Bobby, and yeah, you know, I, I was just like it was like it was per and it was personal to me, like because I was like, you know, I'm doing this shit too. People like you know I, but but hindsight, it's jealousy, like it's a jealousy thing, and of course it's a jealousy, and it's like people are like, oh, you're just jealous. I'm like, yeah, well, what the fuck's wrong with being jealous? Yeah. <laughs> Like, I like, That's when true. did that become something to apologize yeah. for? Like, what I should celebrate people I don't like success that overtakes me? Yeah. Like, why should I do that? So, around that time, that was kind of Lament was dying. Like, it was kind of ending. Joe was how going long, back. To how long were again. you guys a band for? So, Lament was a band from like 90 to 91 to 92, and then back again in like 93 to 96, 95. Okay. So, it was like 95. Sure. And then 
at that point, like biohazards like Jesus and like Life of Agonies, like, you know, St. Peter and Typo Negative, like these bands just completely took over music for people. And I was done. I just felt like, you know what? Hardcore scene was very different for me. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like in that gangsta like vibe. Like even though I try, I really wanted to be a part of that, but I couldn't pull that off. I just was not that person. And, and, and at, this, I, at this point, did did shutdown Mark's band start? And um... shutdown is kind of starting. They're still very young, uh, and then Humanist start. Humanist started already, and Mike has a lot of credentials because of being in confusion for all that time. Okay. So I step out. I get a job. I get an apartment. And I'm just like, you know, I'm like a ghost. Like I, I show up to almost nothing. I'm not really involved in a lot of stuff going on in the hardcore scene at that point. Cause I wasn't really playing, you know what I mean? I was pissed, but I was pissed at myself. I just didn't realize that it was kind of probably partly my fault. Like, you know, I'm carrying grudges against labels and, and record people and big guys and bands. who I don't really know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, that's, like, so that, yeah, like, that, that's an interesting angle. Yeah. Well, everything that you've said for the most part, yeah, I guess if, if but you don't realize, but Sam, at the time, you like it's very destructive. Like, if your excuse for not being successful in music is because you're mad at Bobby from Biohazard, I mean, like, or Howie Abrams, I mean, like, this is this is not normal. Like, this is not like a normal person doesn't process things like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that was it for me. I was gone. I was yeah, out. You were done. So, you don't want like music, done with, and then what don't changed? I got a phone call in, um, late 96 from a friend named John Zito, who is an actor, uh, but he sang in a band called Crusade. Um, he was a hardcore guy that we knew from Brooklyn. He calls me up and goes, listen, I got your number from your brother. I don't know if you care or not, but I know these guys in Westchester, they're trying to start a band and they want to do like a post-hardcore band. And I should reiterate, like the post-hardcore thing was sort of like this new thing that was created in the early 90s, like when Quicksand and Into Another became a band and Shift. You know, there was this moniker called post-hardcore. It was basically people in the hardcore scene not doing hardcore music, but doing very good music. And yeah. like, I always thought Quicksand were the greatest. Quicksand to me are yeah, like yeah. the greatest band in the world. Walter, Walter is one of the best songwriters Genius. ever. Genius. And, and Richie Birkenhead from Into Another, one of the best singers I've ever seen in my life, whether it was Underdog or Into Another. Walter's a goddamn genius. Um, Shift, I was not a fan of. But Orange Nine Millimeter, Burn, Handsome, like, you know, Handsome, yeah, like yeah. Uh, Tom Capone was in that band um, with uh, P.D. Hines, and so there was like this that kind of happened, and then it kind of stopped in New York, like it wasn't really a thing anymore. And I remember the end of Lament, people telling me, "Hey, you should really befriend um, Josh from Shift." Because you guys kind of like a post-hardcore band. And I'm like, oh, we don't sound anything like Shift. Like, that guy's not going to like my fucking band. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's not, it, that's not even a good fit. Because they were like, oh, Lament's not really a hardcore band. It's like a post-hardcore band. I was like, well, Quicksand's a, a too high on the pay grade. Yeah. So they're not going to sniff my balls. Like, you know what I mean? So um, Helmet was so winding I, down by Helmet, now, Yeah, Helmet was winding down at that point. That peaked. Like, when I was playing in Lament, that was a peak thing. So none of that was really picking up, like, on a national scale. You know what I mean? And I wasn't really paying attention to Incubus or the Deftones or Far at this point. I, those were the other side of the earth for me. So he goes, yeah, these guys are trying to do a post-hardcore band, but they really want like a singer. And there's like not a lot of people who actually sing. And I think you'd be perfect for it. So I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know, John. Like, I mean, are they any good? And he was like, well, I, I've heard the music. It's pretty good. I think you'd like it. I think you could do good with it. And I was like, 
I guess give him my number and have him mail me the tape and I'll listen to it. So <laughs> the guys in the band are uh, three guys I've never heard of. Two of them are in a band called Awkward Thought, which was like a hardcore band that I never heard of that was playing like ABC No Rio at the time, which was not like a place that I associated a lot with like the hardcore that I was listening to. Sure. Um, so I get I get this guy Rob on the phone, this guy Rob Seal, and he's like, yeah, I wrote the songs with John Franco. Uh, we know your brother. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, don't you have another brother? Which brother are you? And there's like a lot of confusion. So I was like, yeah, I was in Lament. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you were in Maximum Penalty, blah, blah, blah. So he's like, yeah, man, I really would love you to check it out. So he sends me three songs. And um, they're like, you know, eight-track songs on a cassette tape. And I get it like a week and a half later. And I really like it. So I write the songs right away. Right away. I write all the melodies, the lyrics, boom, boom, boom. Oh, really? So so they send you a tape with, with three songs. A, a tape and, of three songs. And automatically, you know, because like when I hear stuff, I don't know if you're the same way, like I – if I hear a piece of music, like just my mind just goes to a melody immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, yeah. it, is it the same for you? I don't know if you're like this, but usually the first one is the keeper. The first melody is the keeper. The first one is the keeper for me. And like he sends me these three songs and two of them sound similar. One of them is a little bit more like a rock kind of song. It's like, you know, like and I'm like, oh, that's catchy. So I write the songs. And uh, are you familiar with Ultrasound Studios in Manhattan? Uh, is in the music building? Yeah. Yeah, so Ultrasound was where I used to rehearse with Lament. And uh, I book Ultrasound. We're going to do a two-hour thing. We're going to see if this works out. So the guys show up, and, like, two of them have, like, baby fat. Like, they seem very young. And the other guy who plays bass is a guy named John Franco, who actually owns a record label. He's been involved in the hardcore scene for, like, 30 years, too. He's a great guy. Very well-known person. Worked with a lot of bands. Does a lot of merch. Has a label, I think, called Dead City. You know, awesome guy. But I don't know John. And... um the drummer's this guy Wayne and this guy Rob Seal. He just got out of high school. He's like maybe 20 years old, 21 years old. So I'm about 27, but I'm like, you know, hard 27. Like I'm a fucking mess. <laughs> and I'm like, I really am from all the years of hanging out and playing and drinking and smoking. And, you know, I'm a little chub, but I'm not in terrible. My voice is in pretty good shape because I haven't sang in a while. So we go to do the songs and I could just see in their faces that they were like, oh, my God, like this is like, you know, this is amazing. Okay. They couldn't believe it. And we just do the same three songs like seven or eight times in two hour span. At the end of the practice, they're like, yo, do you want to do this? And I was like, do you got more material? And Rob's like, yeah, I got tons of material. Like, you know, I got tons of songs. And I was like, all right, yeah, let's uh, let's do it. Fuck it. So we start rehearsing there on a regular basis for like a couple of months. And unbeknownst to me, like Inhuman is becoming very popular. Castle Heights is doing great. My brother Mark is uh, in a band already. Oh, right. Shutdown's doing great. Yeah. So, so, so figure like, like, uh, like just, just so people know, your brother Mike is in Inhuman. And then your mm-hmm. other brother is, is running Castle Heights. And now Mark my brother is Kevin. Shut, yeah, uh, Kevin. And now yeah, and it's Mark, shutdown. Yeah. So like, the, you know, the, the dynasty is starting to form. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not I don't live in the same house with them. They all live in the same house and I don't live there. And there's so, no and there's no internet. No, there's no internet. So no. everything is over the phone. And so I'm building this band up and um you know, we we I, I was like, well, we should, you know, probably record at least these three songs because we got them down pretty tight. Jimmy Williams from MP owns a studio called Night Owl right across the street from Ultrasound. Uh the music building block there with like 30 was at 32nd Street between 7th and 8th or something like that. Um, and, uh, I go, Jimmy, can you produce this for me? He goes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
because I've become very good friends with him from even dealing with the MP, even though the circumstances were shitty at the time and they were rough at the beginning. MP becomes an established band. There's no hard feelings. I rekindle my friendship with Joe. Everything's wonderful. You know, he's doing his thing. I'm doing my thing. Everything's great. So Jimmy produces the songs um, with uh, this guy, Paul, who's his partner, this British guy. They own Night Owl together. And he's like, oh, this stuff's pretty good. And he was like, you know, I could tell he was like surprised. I was like, oh, thanks. I was like, well, if Jimmy thinks they're pretty good, maybe they're actually pretty good. But he could have just been saying that to be polite. Sure. <laughs> so now we got to pick a name and uh, we're using names that are constantly used. Like we're, we're putting like names of bands, established bands name on the demo and we're giving the demo to people. <laughs> and so we're like, we're like, what, like, like Metallica? Fueled. It was like fueled, fueled and lift or lifted or, and it's like constantly like a problem. And um, uh, I go to play, we go to play Castle Heights. I can't remember who we're opening for, but we're going on like second. That was the big thing. It was like, I'm not going to go on first, but I'll go on second. I don't care how many bands are on the show. I just can't go on first. And my brother Kevin was like, well, you go on second and you'll like it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. that's the best <laughs> you're going to get here. Like, you don't even have a fucking name. And um, we had like six songs. And God forbid we got extra time. Uh, we had a version of, uh, I don't know if you like Sinead O'Connor, but yeah. Um, I'm a huge fan. I we did like a, a weird version of "I Am Stretched on Your Grave" okay. that we could drag out. That was like the bonus song. So we're playing these shows, like these small shows, and it's going pretty good. But um, John Franco is like singing an awkward thought, and he's like, "Listen, uh, I think I can go to Europe with my band. I don't think I can play bass in this anymore." Um, and I was like, "Oh fuck, here we go." But the other guy's like, yeah, we got this guy, Ray. He was in a hardcore band. We know him. He's from Yonkers. Uh, he wants to play bass in the band. Um, he's really a guitar player, but he'll play bass. So this guy, Ray, comes in. Ray's great. I like Ray a lot. I think Ray is like one of my good friends immediately. Everything's wonderful. Tony Stark. I couldn't tell you why. I was a comic book person. These guys weren't comic book people. I just thought it would be funny between like Wu-Tang and like yeah. just to put the name together. And I thought, well, if you have to change it, we can call it like TS 13 or something. Like, was, you know, we was, could... uh, was Ghostface your favorite? Is that why? No, no, he wasn't though. But I like, but I, I like that they reference like wrestling and comics. And like, yeah. that was kind of like cool for me. Cause I like, like those things. So we called the band Tony Stark, put it all in one word. This is years before any kind of Marvel movie or anything like that would happen. And, uh, lo and behold, um, we start getting better quality shows now because my brother's, have good connections and a friend of mine was friends with a guy who owned a label uh at jersey called uh, uh resurrection av records and he basically um you know was putting out like uh like mostly traditional hardcore records so he goes hey give me your demo tape i'm going to give it to my friend uh just to see if he likes it so we had the three songs on the demo which sounded great they're brutal but they were very like Orange nine millimeter kind of sounding like, you know, they had that kind of bite to it. Sure. Um, lo and behold, I, I, I probably, if I heard it now, I wouldn't like it, but at the time I thought it was good. And, um, what was the last he time you heard it? it? Oh, I couldn't tell you the last time I heard the demo, but, um, a long time. I don't think I heard it this century. And, um, he calls me up and was like, Hey, is your brother Mark Scandato? And I go, yeah, it's one of my brothers. He goes, and is your other brother Mike Scandato? I go, yeah. He goes, man, I wanted to sign your brother's band in the worst way. Like and my brother, I think was at the time maybe on Rick to Life's label, or he was on the label from uh, Kevin Gill's label. I don't know whose label. Okay. This is before he was, this is before they go to Victory. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was like, "Man, I wanted to sign your brother so fucking bad." I was I was in on that early because I love youth crew music. My brother Mark was playing like youth of today, youth crew style music. So he goes, "You guys are really good, man." And he was like, 
what are you looking for? And I was like, honestly, just to put out like a five song EP, you know, and, you know, to, to get on better quality shows. Cause we're going on these very small local shows and, you know, it's, you know, it's fine, but it's not really like, you know, where I want it to be. So he was like, all right, well, look for a studio and, you know, I'll, we'll figure out a, a budget. So I don't know how we stumbled onto the studio, but there was a studio called uh, Big Blue Meanie. Great studio. At the time, they had a studio in Jersey and a studio in Utica. And the thing was, you go out to Big Blue Meanie, you stay in Utica, you record, you sleep there, and then you leave with the finished record. Oh, wow. So we're... So we're gearing up to go to Utica to go do this record. And um, we drive out to Utica and it's like almost the winter time and it's freezing. I mean, it's got nowhere. It's like a pizzeria and a strip club are the only places near this goddamn not studio. Not bad, not bad. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> so we go, this is like 96 into 97. And uh, I've been around for like six months, not even, not even six months. And I'm in a studio recording upstate New York making a record. This is awesome. Um, we turn the record in. Now, on the record version of these songs, I'm singing, like I'm actually singing. But like when we track the songs, I'm kind of screaming the songs. So when we go out to Utica, I'm singing all the songs, right? And I'm just, this is just what I'm doing. I'm singing the songs. Um, but live and like tracking them, I had, had a lot more bite to them. So I don't know if it was just my own poor health or my own bad quality in my voice, whatever. But when we get to Utica, I have to kind of sing these in like a singing head voice because I don't really have the, the, the bite to go forward with, with the way I want to do the recording. And we just have to do it. So we record six songs. I think only five make the record. And we have one from the demo, two of them from the demo as a bonus track. If you, if you extra extended play the song. And the guys in the band are pissed. Like they're like, especially Ray, because he was like, oh, like you didn't sing like the songs, like the way you sing them, like when we play live. I go, yeah, it's just like, I don't know. I, I thought I would try singing them instead. Like, you know what I mean? Rather than screaming them. And they didn't like that. Like, like he didn't like it and the label didn't like it. But you couldn't argue with that may have been the better move because I felt like, hey man, like we're not really, this isn't like a hardcore band. Like, why am I screaming these songs? Like, you know, I could sing them. Let me sing them. So interesting, interesting. one of one of the one of the songs on the the record, which would actually change like really change my life, was a song I wrote called Trailer. I'm living in Manhattan with my friend, and his girlfriend is such a pain in the ass. Like she sucks so bad, and it just was my inspiration to write this song. You know what I mean? And all the lyrics are about like him and his girlfriend. I never told him about this, and um, it's a good song. I mean, like the music Rob wrote this beautiful thing in the beginning, and the label is pissed, but they really believe in trailer. Like they really believe in the song. So he pays a ton of money um, to not only get the record released, but to get it charted. Are you familiar with charting? Um, I don't, I know. Maybe. So but... back in, back in the day before the internet music, you paid a third party to, to uh, a sum of money to send your records and to chart the progress of those records. Okay. And then they would send you a spreadsheet. And on top of that, there was a, he was a skateboard guy at heart, the guy on the label, this guy, AJ Falvo, and he was a Jersey skater kid. And he was, do you know uh, who Lance Mountain is? Lance who? Lance Mountain? No. He's a famous BMX guy. Okay. Anyway, um, he had a series of VHS tapes called 311. They were like bi-monthly, like monthly or quarterly magazine style, 
like it was you would buy BMX. I don't know if you ever skated or I was, BMX. Yeah, but... I was I was more skateboarding than BMX. So you would I... buy like a Bones Brigade video, like that kind of thing. Yep, yep. Okay, so this was the BMX version of that. So on those videos, um, they would have bands play songs, and it was bands like the Deftones or POD or whatever the fuck. So he paid money to get trailer onto one of those BM three one one tapes. And it was basically high-end BMX people BMXing to my song, to the full song, like a video. And this changes everything. Like, everything changes now. Because the charting from that song specifically, even though some of the other songs were a little weak, but the charting for that is through the roof. Like, it's the thing that everybody... And now people are really into the song. The song is charting well through McGaffey, which was a charting service, CMJ gives that record a favorable review. I know you're familiar with CMJ. But, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, so so I'm like, this is great. Um, amazing, right? So now we're starting to do better things. We're starting to get some looks from other labels. or contacting Resurrection about Tony Stark. Now, this is where things get really crazy. So Kevin, my brother, is tour managing a little bit of phone call from Ken Creedy. You know Ken Creedy? No. He was like a manager. He managed Life of Agony, Typo, and Biohazard. You ever no. heard of him? No. So he was a Lamore. He booked Lamores, but he was a manager. He said, hey, Keith Caputo just got thrown out of Life of Agony. He's doing a solo tour, and he's got a band, and I want them to play Castle Heights. And Kevin was like, well, I got a great idea. Why don't we have them play with my brother John's band? <laughs> like, no one knows about my feelings about Keith at this point. And uh, because they're blowing up and then Ken, I guess, hears about Tony Stark. was like, that sounds perfect. They could play right before Keith. You know, uh, the band's called Absolute Bloom. So Kevin's like, listen, I got an idea in my head. I think you should attach yourself to this guy because he's a former hardcore guy doing different music. You're a former hardcore guy doing different music. You're both from Brooklyn. Let me represent you with this and see what i could do so i talked to the band and the band's like yeah that sounds great they're in awe of keith caputo like they think life of agony is the greatest band in the world so funny so i get that kevin gets the package from absolute bloom i bring it into the studio to play for the guys and it's not very good like it's i don't know if you've ever heard it have you ever heard it um not that one nope yeah so there's a reason why so (laughs) um so but it's not very good it's it's the music's kind of weak it's just basically keith spouting off you know and hitting these high notes and holding notes for very long periods of time so i remember playing it for the band and like half the band is like this is terrible and i'm like yeah but it's uh, whatever and now i'm like you know i kind of still hate keith's guts so but let me see how this goes so we go to do the show and i don't see keith all night and we do our set and we're getting pretty well received and then Absolute Bloom go to play with Keith. And, you know, it's good. It's not, it's not great, but it's good. There's a lot of people there, a lot of girls there, ton of girls. And Ken Creedy's outside talking to my brother, Kevin, like they're both Ruben Kincaid, you know, from the Partridge family. And I'm like, I think I know what happens next here. And I was like, wouldn't it be crazy if now I finally get to do some stuff with Keith like this, you know, in this environment? So the show's over. They're in the back. And we go in the back and Keith sees me and he goes, hey. And I go, hey. And he goes, 
what's up? And I go, nothing. I go, you seem happy. And he goes, I am happy. And I go, yeah, you seem a lot happier now than when I used to know you. And he goes, you know what? You're probably right. And we just start having a nice conversation. And he goes, so what do you think about, uh, about this thing? I think we might hit the road together. You, what do you think about that? And I go, I think it's great. And he was like, well, if you guys are down, I, I, you know, we loved watching you. And I knew it was bullshit because Keith wasn't there when we played. <laughs> but like, you know, you know what I mean? So that's such a show. I knew, move. It, I knew it. I knew it. So he was like, you know, we have some more stuff going on in the city. I would get you on it if you want to get on it. But you got to talk to Ken. I go, well, I'll have Kevin do that. So my brother Kevin is like, I fucking told you. I told you. I fucking told you. Uh, uh, they're going to do two weeks. They're going to do a tour for two weeks. They want you guys to come with them. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, this is perfect. He goes, John, I'm telling you, this is it. This is going to change everything. This is going to change everything for you guys. I was like, okay. So, so I remember very distinctly, I thought the guitar player was not very good. I just remember, and this is a key point in the story. The bass player was a guy named um, Billy Kelly, who was in a bunch of bands. He passed away a bunch of years ago. He's very good friends with my brother and the guys in the human. Um, and the drummer was a guy named Mike D'Agostino, who was a doctor, um, who didn't probably really need to be doing this band, but Keith, he's like, you know, Keith was a famous guy. So the tour, we're doing two weeks. Kevin is tour managing it. The record is out. Um, we're going to start sending tour packages. I forget where the tour was. It was through the Northeast, but it wasn't anything local. It was like, went to like Kentucky and places like that. And I'm like, this is going to be great. I can't wait. You know, it's like in six weeks or something like that. So <laughs> two weeks come by and we're rehearsing for the tour and we're trying to get ourselves together and we want to be really tight and you know, we want to do a good job. And Kevin is like, you know, I can't get uh, I can't get Ken on the phone. I don't know what's going on. Like it's I know I'm supposed to get the final dates. And Kevin had a fax machine like Kevin was running like a club. So he's he's waiting to get the dates from Mike D'Agostino, the drummer. And all of this stuff is happening. And I think we're going to do like maybe a kickoff at Castle Heights or something like that. I can't remember the story. So, lo and behold, um, Keith Caputo fires the whole band, breaks the band up before the record comes out and leaves and goes to Amsterdam and moves to Amsterdam. Wow. And, and we don't know any of this. There's no internet. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah of course. This is, you know, so this is, this is 97. And uh, now mind you, I have like, I, I, this was a big deal for us. The label is going to put some money behind the tour. Like everyone's thinking this is the thing that's going to put Tony Stark on the map. Right. And now it's not happening. Like it's just not happening at all. There's no tour. There's no nothing. There's no band. So fast forward, like maybe like a week after this falls to pieces, I'm super upset. I'm mad at Keith. I'm mad at myself. I get a phone call from this guy, Giovanni, uh, the photographer, who is the guy who introduced me to Joey Zampella all those years earlier. And says, hey, can you talk? I want to talk. Somebody wants to talk to you. And I think it might be Keith. So I'm like, oh, better not be Keith. But I know Keith's in Amsterdam. It's the guitar player, Pete. And Giovanni shows up to my um, my, uh, my, my, my condo in uh, Bay, Bay Ridge. And they're basically, Pete's like, listen, I thought your band was amazing. Um, I love that song, Trailer. I think it's fucking beautiful. I learned it as soon as I got it are you guys looking for a second guitar player? And I'm like, yo, man, I was, well, I'm looking for a second guitar player. I wanted to go on this tour with you guys. And um, he was like, well, I'm just saying I'm available. I love the band. I want to, if you guys, I think you guys need a lead guitar player. And he was right. We kind of did need a second guitar player. 
So the guys were just, you know, mad about the tour, but they liked the idea that this guy wanted to play and he played with Keith. So that was a big up for them. So Pete Frigletti joins Tony Stark. And now Tony Stark is a five piece. And now he's bringing in parts of songs that they had with Keith that I thought weren't very good. And we're restructuring them. And he could sing. And that was a part that Keith's band had like three part harmony. So now I'm singing and writing songs with this dude, um, who I didn't think was very good, with Tony Stark. While all this is going on, I get an offer from a label called MIA, from a guy named Steve Sinclair, who had, uh, who had some you know, success in the music business. Uh, he says, hey, I want to bring you guys in for a meeting. I want to talk to you guys. I want to sign the band. Wow. So they had, a, they had an office in Soho uh, on like Lisbonard Street or whatever. And I remember we all went. And Pete had just joined the band a few months earlier, but now the band's cooking. Like we got shit on the table. Like we're playing good local shows. We're playing like the skate thing. We're doing the Tony Stark name for the trailer songs picking up. So when we go in there to have the meeting with MIA, there's two A&R guys there. They're very young. One of them is beyond over the moon. He's got like the whole press packet out. He puts trailer on in the, in the office and I'm sitting there. And I'm like, why is trailer on in this fucking office? So he brings us into the room and Steve Sinclair basically goes, I want to sign the band. I want to send you to Chicago to record with Steve Albini. Wow. It's going to cost $30,000. This is 1997. <laughs> I can get you 30, but the money's got to go to Steve, you know, and if you could, can you, can we take this song? And I go, well, yeah, the label's ready to let the song go. Like the label is fine with it. Like, you know, he's like, okay. Let's take this song. Do you have, and we have other material because now we're right. We had songs that we had not written with Pete. Now we're writing with Pete. So we had, maybe we take that song and maybe one other song from the EP and we're going to write eight other songs. We had about seven of them at the time or six. And I was like, this is it. This is it. This is the way it's going to happen. And Pete, <laughs> Pete gets me on the side and goes, John, there's nobody on the radio with an album that costs $30,000. Steve Albini probably makes 150 grand. This isn't real. And I go, well, he just said it. Why would he say it? Like he, he was like, John, there's no way we're getting on the radio. Cause he was like, what do you guys want? And he was like, I think trailer could be a big song on the radio. And we were like, yeah, we, we think so too. He goes, but it needs to be reproduced and remastered and redone with a better producer. I was like, okay, fine. So now I got Pete in my ear who was like, listen, I just sat in on record label contracts with Keith for like a year. Like, I'm telling you, there is no record, there is no song on the radio that costs $30,000. And he's convincing me, even though my gut instinct is to take it and sign it, right? So this is going on for a little while. I'm, on the, I'm about to get married. I'm on the verge of getting married. This is 1998. I'm getting married right after New Year's. And there's some division in the band about this. Because Steve was like, listen, take some time, think about it. It's a huge decision, you know, and figure it out. So I call Steve up on a cell phone from my office. I'm working uh, in Wall Street and he's picking his kids up from like daycare. And he's like, yeah, I just, I normally don't take these calls, but I saw it with you and stuff. And I go, you know, Steve, there really isn't any records on the, on the air, on the radio for 30 grand, is there? And he was like, you know what? You're right. I mean, that's, that's probably true. I mean, uh, you know, there probably isn't. You know, but there probably is some for like 50 or 60 grand. And he was like, I don't know if we can go that far, but I'm telling you, if, if you go and do this record with Steve, it will get on the radio. We will get you on the radio, regardless of how much it costs. He goes, you're, you're reading too much into how much it costs and not into what we could do. 
And it's like, ah, oh, shit. So time, and I couldn't remember the, the, the full details around it, but the other half of the band is really upset. The reason why half the band is upset is because the reason why they wanted Pete in the band was because they wanted to throw me out of the band and replace me with Pete. Whoa. So the, the, the original guitar player and the bass player. I, I'm, loving, had, I'm loving the layers of all these twists and turns, so just keep going. So, But I don't know about any of this. So, <laughs> I'm, again, I'm about to get married. I'm like 28 years old. I'm about to get married, uh, which I would do many times in life, but this is the first time I'm doing it. And I'm like, listen, we have like an offer to go with a guy who produced like in utero on the table. Like, we did it. We did it. This is it. The problem was the, the other guys in the band didn't think it was a real offer. Uh, well, they were afraid to take the offer because they didn't want to take it with me because they felt like I was controlling too much of the situation and I wasn't singing very well and I was just talking a lot of shit. Meanwhile, all of this is happening as a result of these decisions that I was making for them. Wow. Right? And, and my connections through my brothers, they, weren't, they didn't like it. Like, and so... About like three weeks before we're taken, I told the guy I'm getting married. He goes, well, don't call me for like a month if you're getting married. I don't want you to, you know. So um, we're in Ace London now. We switch over to Ace London because Pete is running Ace London, which is all they open as a studio for typo negative. And all of their road cases are in there and their gear is in there. So if you see a Tony Stark press picture, you see road cases for typo negative. That's because they, they, it was basically furniture and typo negatives road cases. So we're in there and I'm like, listen, let's take this offer. Let's go to Chicago. Let's re-record trailer. Let's get trailer on the radio like we want to. And Rob goes, I'm quitting. And then Ray goes, I'm quitting too. And I, the drummer was still in and Pete was still in. Now, I don't, I'm just like, this is like, you know, we don't have to take the deal. If it means you're going to quit, we can do something else. And then they're yelling at me about taking singing lessons and like, oh, if you take sing, if you would have just took singing lessons, we would have probably not quit the band. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Were, did you feel? So I, did you feel like there was any truth to that? I, I don't know. I mean, but it, they felt there was truth to it. So I don't. Their thing was, I think they. So I didn't know this at the time, but there had been a, a real movement to get me thrown out, they, to get Pete in when they saw Pete could sing. But Pete was like, hey, I came here to play with John. Like, I, I would never do that. Like, you know what I mean? Which would turn around to bite me in the ass later on in life. But he was like, look, I just came from a situation with Keith. Like, trust me, if you think John is bad, you should see what's going on with Keith. Like, John's bad, but he's not bad like this. Like, Keith was like, really bad. Like, you know what I mean? He was like, you guys, if you guys think dealing with... Now, mind you, half of that band, the drummer and the, the, the original guitar player, they never really did much else. Like, this was all they, they knew. So I get married... And at my wedding, they're at my wedding and I'm trying to talk to them about this at my wedding. Right. And I'm thinking, you know what, let's just let the wedding go. And then I'll call them in a few weeks when I get back from Florida and we'll, we'll get going. So I still think we have, I have the offer from MIA. It's a long offer and it's 30 grand. Um, no signing. All the money is basically going to get the band some good equipment and going to Chicago for two weeks to put us up in Chicago to record with Steve Albini and that's the offer and I want to take the offer so I come back from my honeymoon I can't get Ray on the phone I can't get Rob on the phone Pete and Wayne the drummer and the, the guitarist say hey let's meet for lunch somewhere in Brooklyn Wayne comes all the way up from Westchester and they sit and they proceed to tell me 
that Ray has been conspiring to get you out of the band going back to like when the band started. He never wanted to be in the band with you. He thought you were a terrible singer. He used to tell the sound men all the time to lower your vocals because how bad they were. Wow. And I'm like, I didn't know. And now I talked to this guy every day for like a year and a half. Like, you know, I didn't know any of this. Like, I thought he was one of my closest friends. Like, I was just like, you, you know, like, how is I mean, this possible? Did how'd that make you feel kind of? Because that would kind of ruin my Terrible. day. Yeah. Terrible. I couldn't believe it. Now, I just got married. I have a great job. I bought a condo. Like, the band is successful. I feel like I'm, like, this is sinking me. Like, I couldn't believe it. And they were like, yeah, Ray hates you. He uh, Now, Rob doesn't like you either because of Ray, but Rob used to like you. And I'm just like, this is this is terrible. Like, I can't believe this is happening. So I go to Pete and Wayne. I go, well, what do you guys want to do? And Wayne and Pete were like, well, I, you know, why don't we why don't we take the stuff that we have and change the name and get other people? And I was like, yeah, we could do that, you know, but, you know, can I try to salvage this MIA deal if I can? Which was a total embarrassment. He completely like once I told him the other guys quit the band, he was done. And that we were going to change the name. He had no, the interest was gone. I think he had signed Crisis and maybe Candiria or um, uh, Indecision. Because oh, wow. he had said, these are the bands we're signing. Here's my wish list. And I was on that wish list. And he signed everybody but us. And I don't think they got 30 grand to go work with Steve Albini. Yeah. Um, so now I'm like, well, fuck. I got to make some changes here. But here's the thing. The Tony Stark EP, people like it. And trailer. And people want the band to play. And we're getting offers. Is that song av- and, available anywhere? I'd like to hear it. Oh, yeah. Just put, oh, yeah. You, I, yeah it's, it's catchy. I mean, it's really the music that makes it so catchy. But people really like the harmony, vocal, and the, and the hook. Oh, yeah, um, so now my brother Mark is blowing up like a balloon. Like, just a balloon. He gets signed to... And he's giving my record, he's wearing, his band is wearing Tony Stark t-shirts and giving out my record to everybody and people like it. And um, I'm like, well, fuck, I got to change this name. I didn't really like the name anyway. So I got to go to the label and I got to make a whole change here. So I get the lament bass player, Jeff Mackey, to to do some stuff with us because we still had some offers to do some really good shows. And we do that with Pete as the only guitar player. But now we take some new material that Pete was working on with Absolute Bloom and the good stuff from Tony Stark, but we're playing the shows as Tony Stark. We're playing the shows as Tony Stark. But now Pete is really into this band. Like he wants to take over the band. He wants to write, rewrite everything. He wants to change the name. He's writing lyrics. He's writing melodies. And that was the advent of Synthetic 16. And uh, we switch out bass players for a guy named Mike Trzinski, who I had known from Social Disorder, who was a Wall Street guy like myself great bass player and i was like hey you want to just do like a rock band you know um but the the onus was always to get to what tony stark was offered like you know we wanted to get there the label believed in the band the label you know maybe didn't believe in me but they believed in the band because now the label felt like that was my fault um resurrection was like yeah these guys quit because you're an ass (laughs) the band they were like who leaves a band on the brink of getting signed to you know because the singer is such an asshole like you know so now i got to kind of repair the relationships but i'm very angry yeah i'm and, sorry what you gonna say? oh i was gonna say and, and but like musically like when synthetic 16 kicks off um did you guys have like a direction in mind because like when i listen to it you know it's very much of, of stuff that i would really listen to especially back then you know I, I would always say like the guitar work was very much like catherine wheel um 
you know, and like th- those types of bands. Uh, I saw that you guys even did a cover of um, Mother Mary, which I was like, oh, that's super. Oh cool. yeah, far. Yeah. So Water and Solutions, huge record. Um, yeah. So, like, what was like the like kind of um, the the game plan for this? Like, just to because I don't know what mainstream Tony like mainstream rock. Like, like it was rock. instead of doing post hardcore. Because well, I just called it that, and I, there was another name they were calling it. I didn't know what they were calling it, so we just decided to call it modern rock. We were like, okay, Pete was a good-looking guy. I was not a good-looking guy, <laughs> but Pete was a good-looking guy who could sing and write harmonies and play guitar, and he was like, he looked like a he looked like a rock star kind of guy. So I was like, maybe we can gear this band towards because, you know, Tony Stark had like people that liked the band. But, but, you know, this is the advent of emo, like emo was becoming a a thing. Like this was going to be what people would call emo in a few years. And during one of these sort of excursions, I meet Jeff from Thursday because he's interning at Big Blue Meaning, like when we're recording the Tony Stark record and he loves the band and he asks us to go play his house um, in, um, he was going to college, I think at the time in Jersey. So he lived at a famous house where they had shows in Jersey and the whole show was the movie life inside and Tony Stark. Oh, cool. And I remember going up to Jeff's room and he had the Tony Stark poster on his wall and he's like, Hey, I'm in a band too. And I'm like, Oh, that's nice. Like, you know what I mean? mm-hmm. like good for you. What's the band called? Oh, we're going to call the band Thursday. Oh, that's nice. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, just, yeah, yeah. I was so dismissive, like of this guy who was so nice to me and who I liked so much. Good for you. Which would also come back around again later on in life. So, um, so now we have this nucleus of the four guys the, with the Tony Stark thing behind it. We still playing some of the songs. Pete is pulling the band away from that because he's like, listen, I was in a band with Keith with all his bullshit. Now I'm with the Tony Stark bullshit. I just kind of want to write stuff with us. I want it to be stuff that I write with you. So now I have a songwriting partner, like a real partner that I sit and write songs with and melodies with and harmonize with and bounce ideas off of. And I related it to like when Morrissey met Johnny Marr. Like, you know what I mean? It was like I was thinking you know, more this... Richie and John Bon Jovi, but I guess. But that's what it was really kind of like. It was more like that because we were both two WAPs from New York, uh, <laughs> trusted area. But like I was like, yeah, this is going to be my thing. And I put all my chips on Pete because I said, man. This guy could have fucked me out of Tony Stark, which is weird because he didn't have the personality to front a band. He was very aloof. I don't know if it was drugs or he like not like mental illness. I don't know. He was just not a good social person, but he could sing and he could play and he was a good player. So now we're writing the songs. We're playing shows as Tony Stark while we're writing these songs that we want to present to the label. Um, we go back to Resurrection and go, look, here's some demoed songs. We want to we want to make the band a mainstream rock band. And he hears, uh, I, I think it was uh, the song Blue, which was the only other song that ever really changed my life. But he was like, and I wrote that, like Pete didn't write any of that. I wrote the whole thing. I wrote the melody. I wrote the, everything. And I helped arrange the song with him. And we give him uh, the song that was be called Your Water. And I think we give him another song. And he was like, okay, I'll, I'll put this in. Well, we got to do a full length album. I'm going to put this in a studio. Because in his mind, this was like an investment. He was basically saying, I'm, I'm going to try to get you to get a record out so you can get signed because you almost did that for me in the past. Because he would have made money on that MIA deal, right? So we have like the, the end of basically Tony Stark, you know, which is um, not even like less than two years from when the band started, mind you. Like it wasn't even around for two years. But that last run, like with the, before these guys quit, 
my brother Mark gets me a helps me get a booking agent through uh through the label. This girl who had the booking agent at the time who's booking all of what would become these enormous emo bands, like you know, um, like a precursor to that, like becoming a big deal. I'm sort of seeing the 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 side the 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 writing on the wall. Like I'm seeing that there's some some changes happening on some of these out-of-state shows we get to play. And which is crazy when I think about it now, because the the guys that quit the, the band was actually doing really well. Like it wasn't like like the band was doing great. I mean, this is like we had the booking agent who would go on to book bands like Coheed and Cambria and Elliot and Jimmy Eat World and Hot Water Music and Saves the Day. Like so, we were So it like, felt it felt like the beginning of something. Yeah, like it was crazy. So like we had the record comes out and like Pete's going to join the band and this this Keith thing falls through. But like my brothers are doing well, like it didn't really negatively affect the band that way. Even the MIA deal, like like this booking agent that we were with at the time, we, we, turn, we turned at the time like and I kind of fucked that up, too. But I'll talk about that. But um, well, I did. I fucked it up. So um, like when these guys quit, they quit the band, a band that was doing well. Like it wasn't like they quit because the band was shitting the bed. They just hated me that much. Like they didn't want to be in it that badly. Like, you know, what I mean? like it was almost like the success of it fueled them wanting to leave um which is a big part of it too i mean i don't know i mean the band was going to become like a serious thing it looked like like we were getting shut down we're getting us on some very good shows with them which was cool but like high profile shows one-off shows and then this booking agent was trying to get us on things she had worked out a deal with our um record label they basically they bought her a brand new computer if she took the band on um and next thing i know like she's we're playing with like we're doing a tour with ink and dagger where you know we're, we're opening for saves the day which is really really funny are you familiar i guess you're familiar with saves the day right saves the day yeah yeah for sure we had chris on the other show chris is the singer right yep okay so i'll tell you a funny story about chris so we played brownies with them and um he was very young his mother made him apologize for yelling at the sound man that's how young chris was yeah he was super yeah. i think he started at like 17 or 18 or something yeah he was a teenager he yeah. was and he was very short and um so we got to play with them and she was trying to get us on a tour with hot water music and elliot and this was like 97 like you know 98 and i didn't even know who the fuck these bands were there was the you know some records like era type 11 and six yeah. going on seven that's kind of like where all all of these things were happening like sweet diesel like there was this sort of thing happening in New York. And then I would play shows like with Ink and Dagger opening for them in like Scranton or like Albany or whatever. And we would do like one-offs and like colleges. And so there was something happening. Like there was like this shift that I, 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 I could feel like there was like this. I, I think we just called it post-hardcore. We didn't know what else to call it. But then these guys quit. And now I got Pete in the band and we're writing what would be the album uh, Your Water. And we didn't even have a name for the band. And the whole running joke was when we turned the demo over to Resurrection, the guy AJ was like, oh, these sound like songs like 16-year-old girls would like. Like, this is like, this is not like, these are songs like like little girls would like. Like, you know, so that's where the name kind of came from. It was oh, like, synthetic. synthetic 16 was like, it was like synthetic plastic girls. Like, yeah. uh, like would just think all these songs are about them. Like, oh. you know what I mean? <laughs> that's great. So that's where the, that's where the name came from. And yeah. A lot of people hated the name. And after coming from Tony Stark, it was like, oh, like, I got to give it a rest with these bad names. But, you know, <laughs> Pete, Pete, Pete had a lot of control. Like, and I took a step back and I was like, well, Pete's talented. I'll let Pete kind of drive the boat here a little bit, but I'll, 
I'll stay on top of like the bookings and stuff between my brothers and, and the booking agent that we had. And we were working with people, like we were playing constantly, like continental brownies. Um, How often were play, you playing? Uh, like, I mean, cause like back then, weekend. yeah, every cause back then locally, you could hit up so many places in New York and Brooklyn. Yeah. Like, it, it was Lamore yeah. was still a show. It was, was, was the resurgence of Lamore. We were playing literally every weekend. We were rehearsing two nights, two nights a week and playing every weekend, or at least one night if we had to play on the weekend. And, but now like the, the dynamic is changing. We went out to do a show, I think in Meriden, Connecticut as Tony Stark. And, um, uh, even with, with the different lineup and we were testing some of these synthetic 16 songs and, you know, they weren't really hitting with that kind of crowd. It was still like a post hardcore kind of crowd. It wasn't really a good idea to put some of those songs out there. So I knew we were going to have to switch it up and get to find something. We got to find a whole other way of, of doing business here. And um, we record uh, with the four people. Uh, we start to lay down the recording. We're going to do a full on like two week recording at Big Blue Meanie only in Jersey now. Not going not go to Utica, which I was happy about. This was in like Hoboken. And um, at the time, I think uh, Shutdown weren't working on their record yet. They were about to. But another band was working there that we were friends with. And they were putting out, I think, the Rosenbergs. If you ever heard of the Rosenbergs? No. Some some indie band. Then there was like some other like posty hardcore kind of band they were working with. But um roger murray from af was producing my brother mark's record out of there and i was doing shows with his side band with his wife at the time a band called lady luck which he played bass in so we got to play a bunch of shows with them and i got to sing on their record um and i also got to sing on the shutdown record that was going to come up around this time this is like 99 98 99 going into 99 so we take on another guitarist because Pete is just writing like six guitar parts for every song. And he gets his friend across the street, this guy, Adam, who had no real playing experience, but, you know, was really good friends with Pete. And they both had like dueling Les Pauls, like very expensive Les Pauls. And I remember Resurrection gave us a signing bonus. And we took that money and we bought um, equipment with the money. Like they bought new Les Pauls. I bought like a whole wireless mic set up. We bought a van. We bought the signing van from Shutdown. Bonus sounds like yeah, we got like a signing bonus. Look yeah. at you guys. You it guys... wasn't like yes, <laughs> it, yeah. It wasn't like a signing. It was just basically like Pete basically had convinced AJ that we were going to be like Stone Temple Pilots. Like we we're going to be like a, a successful rock band. So we need new equipment because like Rob was playing with like an Epiphone. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For most of that time, Wayne needed new drums. Like uh, I wanted a wireless mic, you know, so I could like do fun shit in the crowd or whatever. And Mike got like a P bass. You know, um, so we got a gear and we started, we laid down with the foundation, what was going to be, um, that album. And it's the, I can't even believe I have to say this again. So we are recording the record and, uh, I guess it's 99 going into 2000. And, um, I, uh, something happened. I don't remember what it was, but Pete was like listen we have to tour off this record like we have to get aj to get us a tour we have to try to find someone to get us a tour we don't have the booking agent anymore that felt thrill because i wrote her a letter complaining about how she handled the band how the band wasn't important to her and we bought her a brand new computer and she called me up and said i cried and i read this letter to my mother oh, like man. that's how much this offended me this girl went on to book like jimmy e world like you know like oh. I mean, she's a huge person in the huge person in the record business so, wow. um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm realizing a theme here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is the theme. So now mind you, 
prior to that, we had played this conference in, uh, I think it was called like the Scranton Music Conference or some shit. Like we played some, there was like music conferences going on. We got asked to play uh, and the label would pay for us to play, like go there and like do like showcase there or whatever. So the, AJ Favo, got, to his credit, hasn't made a dime pumping money out believing in like these songs he's just believing and i think the the trail like the, the song trailer was like the catalyst for it for him he was like well i know that they had that deal because i had to help them you know release those songs so i know they're legit even though they're not like drawing tons of people or like you know selling you know tons of records or you know but the the attention is so favorable to these guys right so and a lot of it was just courtesy because of my brothers so it was like you know, it didn't hurt that shutdown guys were wearing Tony Stark t-shirts on every tour. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was kind of a cool thing. Like, oh, what band is that? Like, oh, that's Mark's Brothers band. It's a, a post-hardcore band. Like, you would like them. Check them out. They have a song on this uh, comp or whatever. And I think Resurrection had signed E-Town Concrete around that time. And that was like, they were making money with E-Town. E-Town became a huge band. So they put out that big E-Town record. Um, I don't know what the fuck it's called, but um, not my thing, but nice guys. I mean, we yeah. were on the label with them for a bit. And they were a super successful band. So, you know, not my thing, but it doesn't really seem to matter. So now we're going, we're recording this record at Big Blue Meaning. And the, the guys are producing it. I can tell don't like the band. I could just sense they don't musically like the style. Or, or person. Musically, personally, I think we're okay. Musically, the two engineers, and one of them had done some pretty big things in the music business, not liking the band. Like he get, you know, and then auto tune was sort of a, a big thing. Like pro tools was how everyone was working back then. This is like the late nineties. And, you know, they had this Neve console for those of you that are familiar with console speak. For sure. Neve, they had like a $300,000 Neve console. That was big blue meanies claim to fame. It was like the last Neve console built. Okay. This thing looked like it belonged on a space deck, like somewhere in like Battlestar Galactica. And I'm in this like shitty, four-piece rock band like we don't really need this level of production like we, we don't we didn't have it for the ep you know the ep was like a glorified 16 track but now like these guys pro tools auto-tune dissect everything you know break down every lyric every line spend 12 hours on the vocals and i could see they're frustrated because a lot of my stuff is very flat or it was written in a way that they didn't like they're trying to restructure the songs. Now, at the time, I didn't realize that if they restructure the songs, they could claim ownership of the oh, song. Yeah, for sure. You see what I'm saying? Production so I didn't credits. realize this. Here we go. So I didn't realize this at the time. So we had a flat deal. I think the record cost like 30 grand or something like that. It was like 20 grand or 30 grand. It was expensive. But some of that was the product. Most of that was production. And the other part of it was the release money. So we had already worked with them when the, the Utica, you know, with Tony Stark, but that was an EP and it was like, you know, very, it was done over like two days. This was being done over a few weeks and we were going over big time and the guys were working really hard. So something happens and the, some, they're unhappy with something I'm doing vocally. They, they change something around. And my drummer is really upset about this. Like, cause he just feels like I'm taking, like I'm, I'm not doing a good job. And, um, we're having like this meeting. It's like, we're just, we're just finished recording. Now we're, we're going into final finish the, the last song, whatever. And we get in this huge fight and he's like screaming at me about how bad the vocals are. And wow. you know, Jay had to spend 16 hours auto tuning every one of your fucking shitty vocals. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? And then Pete was like, yeah, well, you know, 
you know, he did have to redo your vocals. And I'm just like, well, why, why do you know this? And I don't know this. Like, well, cause you're not here. And I'm like, cause they were there. Like they basically were there 24 hours a day. I was going to work and coming later. And like, you know, I was doing the singer thing. Like I wasn't hanging out all day yeah, in the mix, sure. yeah, you know, yeah. I did a scratch and then I left. And then I was like, okay, call me in to do my vocals. This is normal behavior. But they were kind of offended by this. And Mike at that point, the bass player had kind of had enough. And unbeknownst to me, Pete gets uh, this guy, Adam in the band under the auspice of maybe we should throw John out and I could sing for the band now. This is now like a year later after, you know, Tony Stark wanted to do this. So they're going to throw me out like right before the record comes out of the band because they hate that they were unhappy with the way I was acting and my voice. And I'm just like, what a terrible, like, and I'm saying to myself, this is the worst business decision ever. You just made a whole record with me and you're not going to have me in the band. Like, what do you think this record's going to be? It's not going to be worth anything. Like I could take this record and go do something else. Yeah. Like, you know, and I think they didn't really think about that. And I remember I got out of that studio at like five in the morning or six in the morning. I go back home uh, to my ex-wife in my condo and I didn't know who to call. And I called Joe Affy at like eight in the morning to try to tell him the story. And he's like, yo, it's eight o'clock in the fucking morning on a Saturday. And he's hung up on me. <laughs> and I'm like, am I thrown out of the band? I don't know. And I'm like, well, I don't want to get thrown out of the band. Like, you know, because we got this record coming out. I just spent all this work on it. So somehow we resolve this. And then Mike goes, well, I'm just going to leave because Pete wants to tour. When he's not talking about throwing you out, he's talking about touring. And I'm not into doing either one of those things. But he was like, but if you're going to stay, you should probably, you know, watch this guy or get rid of this guy. And I'm like, well, I just wrote this whole album with him. How can I get rid of him? Right. Mike goes to quit. And Mike is leaving. And uh, I'm like, well, shit, like, I don't know what to do with Mike. You know, but Mike says, I'll stick around and, you know, until you get somebody else. Because it wasn't like he was, you know, we were we were, we were going to put the record out. Mike was going to gradually leave the band. That's the way that worked out. Mike was going to gradually leave the band. So I was like, well, shit, you know maybe I can get Mike to stay if we get rid of Pete. Now, my, the, the record's going to come out like in a few months. The funny thing is, is like, I, you know, you guys are fighting and, and, you know, me listening to the record, like 20 years later, I'm thinking like, this is a great record. Uh, why I, I can't really comprehend why anyone would want to abandon ship after like, well, make... well, but, but everything was riding on it though, Sam. It was like this, like AJ basically went into serious debt to get this record on the right. He was like, I have to get this record on the radio. I have to get this record on the radio. So now we have Pete is pushing this song, uh, army ants. And, uh, that I wrote half of it and he wrote the other half, but he, it had been in his wheelhouse for a long time. And he's like, this is the song that's going to get us on the radio. And I was like, all right, well, maybe, I mean, it's very catchy, but it's a very hard chorus to sell. Like it's, you know, it's very wordy and, you know, and I was like, it's not really that re re repetitious enough. Like, you know what I mean? But I get it. It's a popular song. So we got an opportunity to go to Arizona to do like a week in Arizona prior to the, go do the recording. And we had like demoed the songs. And while we're out there, um, I noticed Pete, his behavior is very strange because I had not spent this much time with him. I was going to spend literally like now a week with these guys straight in the West Coast. The make, the make and, or break. Yeah, this was the... So uh, a friend of ours, uh, we had a contact through Alice Cooper through my drummer's dad was very friendly. He played golf with Alice Cooper's best okay. friend. So he's like, hey, can you help my son's, my friend's son's band? They're on a label. They you know, can you get them some shows out here? And Alice Cooper was like, yeah, call this person. They'll, they'll take care of it. So we get to open for Modern English at this huge club in Phoenix. Wow. 
in 2000, uh, in uh, 99 rather. And, um, right before we go to record and then we get to play on good morning Phoenix, which is a Fox 10 morning show. And we have to do an interview at university of Arizona and two other shows. Right. So just a lot of stuff to do in like a week, especially go to the West coast. So I fly out with Mike, the band drives out with the gear because they want to drive. They want to road trip it, you know, cause they're into smoking cigarettes. Everybody's smoking cigarettes at this point. And, you know, they were like, yeah, we're just going to buy a carton of cigarettes and get get gas and just drive the gear down there in the van. So we're driving our van to Arizona to play shows with all of our gear. So I fly out with Mike. And as soon as I get off the plane, I got to go do a show. Like, like literally, like no time. Like I wash my hands, I pee, and then I'm in the car getting driven by somebody's cousin with Mike to go play like in an hour. And the next day we got to be at Good Morning Arizona at five in the morning. Wow to load in because you have to get everything sound checked before they go live at six in the morning. Oh. And they'll only let you rehearse during commercials, which are two minutes, but they're getting only let you do 90 seconds because they can't have any of the sound. Up. Now it's already like a hundred degrees. It's the summertime in Arizona. And I'm like, Holy shit. But this is like what you, this is what you train for. I mean, this is like what you, yeah. Yeah. These, this is, you know, this is That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. This is the life. Right. And I'll never forget, like, you know, we're in Arizona and um, we do the morning show and we do, we do army ants. And then I think we do a B side, which I still don't know why the fuck we did this song. It was all Pete instead of blue. And we do and army ants is too long. It gets cut off. Like they go to commercial, like when we're in the song, but I do do the interview with the guy and all the other stuff. And they mentioned all the dates and this and that, blah, 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 blah. So we're in a Denny's. We play a show that night and the show is not good. Like it was bad. And I was like, fuck, the show's bad. So we're in a Denny's and it's just the band that we brought one person with us. And we're sitting there with my friend's cousins who live there. And these girls come over. It's like 1130 at night. And they were like, did you play on TV today? <laughs> and we're like, yeah. And she was like, hold on a minute. And then next thing you know, all these other girls come over. And they're all people who work there because they have it on in the Denny's. Like, I guess it's the big morning show there, the Fox morning show. Yeah. And she was like, I knew it was you. I knew it was you. And then I was like, oh, my God. So they break into, they have like a vending machine with all stuffed animals in it. And they start giving us all these stuffed animals. And like, they're hanging out with us at the giant table and we're taking pictures. And nobody has a camera phone. Like, you know what I mean? Like, cell phones aren't like for cameras at that point. And it's amazing. And we're signing autographs on Denny plates. And people are coming over just because like they think we're famous like hey could you sign my uh my denny thing i'm like yeah we're passing it around and, was you know it, and was like, like it, was like the band collectively happy doing this yeah oh yeah everybody was really happy doing it but it, you know ex you know but it was just it was weird because i it was it was to me it was like it was the highlight of the trip really and we didn't get to the modern english shows yet which were awesome but like to me i was like oh this is what you do this for this is what i wanted like yeah. and now here i am like I was in the hallway, I was going to get cigarettes from a vending machine and I come back and there's all these people standing over the table. And now there's a lot, it's a college area, you know? So there's a lot of young people going, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? For sure. And now we, ha we have some stuff in the, in the, in the van. So we're giving people some free like promos and we have posters and stuff like that. And we're just sitting in a Denny's signing shit for like an hour in Phoenix. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, this is. 
And so in my mind, I'm like, this is my life now. Like, yeah. I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. <laughs> Little did and, you know. And and not only that, now I get a, I'm giving myself a pass in my behavior because I knew I was going to do it. Like, you know what I mean? I'm justifying how terrible a spouse I'm going to be, you yeah. know, and how, you know, my infidelity now is going to go to places unparalleled yeah. because <laughs> because some girls recognize me at a Denny's in Phoenix. You know what I mean? Like this is the highlight of my career. Yeah. Um, and then of course we go to do the, uh, the Fox, we, we do the Fox show and then we do a radio interview and we sing, we, me and Pete do it because we would sing harmonies on these things just to, you know, and they would go really well. And then like all these girls are like, wow, can we get on the guest list for the show with modern English? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know? And, uh, so we go to play with modern English and uh, it's fine. It's great. But like, they won't even like say hello. They won't talk to us. I'm like, oh, this kind of sucks. Like, you know what I mean? I was like weird, you, you know? know? Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird vibe when the band doesn't want to talk to you. It's just like and I went through that with bands before. And, you know, I, I, I definitely never felt it never felt good. Like, you know what I mean? And then the next day, the last show is opening for a Motley Crue cover band. Nice. At some metal bar, like a Castle Heights, where they actually have pyrotechnics in the fucking bar for the Motley Crue cover band, <laughs> um, who I think are from Pittsburgh. I mean... And this is in Arizona. Especially, yeah. and, and yeah. at that point, like, they were already over. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but they but they only go up to um, uh, the third album. Like, they do, like, Shout at the, like, Shout at the Devil, mostly, and they all... And they all look like Motley Crue and they have the makeup on and they have pyrotechnics. Amazing. And, and like, you know, I, had, I, I was fucking around with some chick out there for a little bit and I got a tattoo out there and I was just like, I'm in bad shape. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm just drunk all the time. And I barely talked to my wife and I was just like, you know, I know, like, I know this is ending like that. That's ending. Like my personal life is going to blow up, but it's okay because I have this, like, you know, I'm self, I'm self-sabotaging. Yeah. So all of that led up to going to record this record. And then we sort of, you know, we kind of make peace. And then we start playing out for the record. We do the Castle Heights record release thing there. And um, this is, I guess, in 2000, in the beginning of 2000. And uh, it's, you know, it's the reviews are not great. Like the reviews are semi-favorable. Like um, they're like, okay. You know what I mean? And But the charting is strong. Like I remember uh, about two, a month after the album came out, uh, my mother-in-law died Wow! and I had to go, she died of cancer and I had to get my shit together and go spend a week in Pennsylvania with my in-laws and put everything on hold. So my brother, one of my brother-in-laws at the time was like, Hey, you want to go to Villanova? We're just going to drive up there because I went to school there and there's this amazing record store. I think you'd really like, it's the coolest record store. And I was like, Oh, I guess. We drive to this record store on campus of Villanova, which I'd never been to. And we go into this very cool record store, very cool record store. And as I go past their top 10 hot albums of the week, Your Water is the number seven wow. on their list. <laughs> That's great. And I look at my brother-in-law and his wife and I go, did you know this? And he goes, how the fuck would I know this? I don't even know. What the... This is, he goes, wait, you don't know about this? And I go, I don't know about this at all. That was the power of charting. That was the power of McGaffey and charting and paying services to chart your records. Yeah. And then he goes to the girl behind the counter. He goes, you know, this guy's the singer in the band, right? And she was like, oh, okay, whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so they go and they get all the you didn't, copies. You didn't drop was, an acapella for her? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, she probably was like, this piece of shit? Yeah. So like, you know, like, look at this guy. He's like a fucking tubby bitch. So I start, so she was like, hey, just sign. She goes, I think we got a poster somewhere in the back for this 
So there was the Your Water poster with Misty Monday on yeah, it, of course, right. and I'm signing those. Well, yeah, that was part of it too. I had met her boyfriend in, right before the album came out. He put out indie horror movies, her boyfriend at the time. And I said, hey, I'd love to get her to be on the cover for this album. And he was like, ah, she probably won't do it, but I'll make her do it because I like you. And he was like, what do you say? Uh, like 250 for me, 250 for her, and 250 for the photographer. And I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, I was like, that, that seems fair, but we're going to have to own the picture. And he goes, hey, you can own the picture, sure. Yeah, and the deal. label was like, yeah, it wasn't a terrible deal. It was like, but years later, she would act like she was pimped out for it. Like it was some big disservice to her, like she never got the money or something. Oh, really? and I was like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. To, to people who would give it to her to sign, she would. She wouldn't sign it. Like she refused to sign it for somebody in my office that saw her at like a porn convention. Just maybe it's like she the, was like the relationship with her. Maybe she wasn't with that. Yeah, guy. it was more about the relationship with the guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but but because uh, I ran into Aaron like years after that, and I and I was like, you know, I'm kind of pissed at you. And she's like, you're pissed at me. I was like, yeah, like I heard you don't sign the record. She was like, that's bullshit. I totally sign it. And I go, I don't know. This guy didn't seem like he was lying. Well, shout, so, shout out to Spider Babe. Yeah, to Aaron, well, uh, Aaron Aaron Brown, aka Misty Monday. That's right. The the the, the your water babe. So, um, so yeah, so it's like things are happening. Like there's good things going on. Like there's all these really, really good things going on. And there's interest from major labels now, even though the record's not doing well. And I'm getting very bizarre phone calls through the, through the record company. Wayne got, somebody got in touch with Wayne through the Arizona shows from Warner brothers. And then they got in touch with the label. And there was like real interesting parties interested in this band. Like now it's like, oh, this is coming back around again. And they wanted to hear more material. And we had tons of more material. But um, Mike was leaving. The bass player, Mike, was leaving. And I was like, well, that's going to be a fucking problem. You know what I mean? Because like, you know, Mike was like, you know, Mike had a good Wall Street job like me. He was an older guy. You're leaving me with like these crazy, you know, the crazier dudes in the band. And that's when we kind of rearranged the band a little bit. And we get a guy named Eric Gutman, who would turn out to be an actor in Jersey Boys and go on to Broadway. Nice. <laughs> and like, you know, and he ends up in the band for a while while we restructure the band, try to, to change the band a little bit and change things up. And we're trying to um, write more radio friendly type material. And we're playing locally all the time. Not really any tours going on at this point, but we're playing a lot. We're back to that swing of things. And now we have Eric in the band singing with Pete. And now we have this three-part, Eric's playing bass. And we have this three-part harmony going on. Good Eric is like a fucking classically real Broadway-trained singer um, who had just moved here from the, from the Midwest. And he grew up in L.A. And, you know, he ends up in the band. And he thought he was going to play guitar, but we switched him over to bass. And now it's like we got strong like the band is going to be a strong live band this is going into the mid to the end um right up into you know uh, going into like when 9-11 happened going into like 2000 and what was 9-11 is it 2001 right? 2001 2000, yeah. 2001 i'm I, I, it's terrible to say that so like 2000 then we go into 2001 and now i we play in this random show at castle heights and kevin puts us on with this band called five cent hero and another band called red 12 I don't know these bands. I know I do about these bands, but uh, they're really good. And Five Cent Hero is like exceptionally good. And I make a point of meeting their manager, uh, who's this guy, Steve Barton, who becomes a very big guy in the horror world, who starts Dread Central and um, has a hand in a bunch of horror films. Um, and it's like, a, it's like a well-known person in that era, in that horror world now. I think he had a hand in getting Terrifier released, by the way. His name, yeah, his yeah. name is Uncle, Creep, Uncle yeah. Creepy. I don't know yeah, if you ever heard of him. I know, I know him because... Uh, uh... My friend Rob worked for uh, 
Dread. Dread, and uh, yeah. they, they put out Terrifier. Yep. Yeah. So we had, I, we had he, Damien on the show, the director. Okay. So so I know. So I Steve introduces himself to me. Goes, hey, I manage me and my friend manage uh, Five Cent Hero. Uh, your band's awesome. I go, dude, your band is awesome. I go, I've been looking for a band like this like forever to like play around the city with. You know, like we should team up. We should do like a Wonder Twins team up, a Wonder Power Superpower team up here. And next thing you know, we're obsessed with each other. Like we're the three of us, the three bands, mostly us and Five Cent Hero are now, we're never going to play without each other again. Like we've decided, like we're in love with each other. Like we're spending all of our time together. We're getting up on stage, doing each other's songs. It's like this beautiful thing is happening. And I could see Kevin is looking at this like, hmm, Castle Heights is now like a rock club. Like I, like, and you know, I always, Kevin always had the best intentions, but he he was in love with his club. Like his club was his life. Like he wasn't interested in going past that. Yeah. He wanted that to be like his world. You know, like I could conceivably at this point in time see him saving up money to buy the place. Like he was not looking to manage bands or he was managing tour managing shutdown and he was, you know, he's tour managing some other bands, irate and some other and sworn enemy. He was one of the first managers of sworn enemy. But like Castle Heights was Kevin's thing. So I, Kevin's like, this is the band that you need to hook up with. Like, you know, you and these guys just need to play everywhere together. I'll help you if you need to get booked in other places. And this relationship with Five Cent Hero was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because now we had another group of people and another fan base to play with. And mm -hmm. it was incredible. And they got us, one of the best shows we've ever played was with them and Funk Face and uh, Danny Boy from House of Pain with uh, Lords of Brooklyn, sold out CB show. Nice. And it was an amazing show. I mean, this was like, we had to go on early and whatever, but it was a great show. What I'm, my, and they also got us to play the Meadowlands with them. And then we got back to play the Meadowlands by ourselves. Like, you know, we got paid a lot of money by Clear Channel to play there. But we put a tour together with them uh, to go to Michigan. Eric was from Michigan and we were going to play um, a bunch of clubs through Michigan. And um, then 9-11 happened. And the co-manager of Five Cent Hero died on 9-11 in the World Trade Center. Fuck. Uh, this guy, Dave. Yeah. Dave worked with Steve. They were managing bands together. Dave was a photocopy repair guy who was taking a call all the way up at the top of the World Trade Center. Man. And he dies. Brutal. And we have a show coming up with Five Cent Hero, like, in two weeks, essentially, from that time period. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, is this even going to fly? And we we do the show. It's like three weeks after 9-11. And it was just one of the most surreal experiences ever. And in a month, we're leaving to go to the tour. The tour is already booked to go to Michigan. And uh, not even in a month. And Steve's like, yeah, we're still going to do the tour. We're still going to go forward. Like, you know, and I just couldn't believe that these guys were going like the, the pain that they must have been in. And I never got to know Dave, really. I met him once, you know. Because Steve was like the guy I got to know, but they were they were they were partners. They were like you know they they were both booking this band and managing this band, and we we go to um, we go to Michigan for like a week with Five Cent Hero, and we just have like the best time. I mean, we just have so much goddamn fun. I mean, it was just shows were it good. was the shows were fine. I mean, the shows weren't great, but they were fine. Yeah. We had a radio interview, I think, in Ann Arbor or something, and. We got into a college fight. Like uh, we, they robbed this girl's sorority because she got to, tried to get us beat up at a show. It was chaos. I mean, I was like, you know, we had these two girls we're talking to in the middle, just like peeing in the middle of the street. I was just like, it was just this utter chaos of the world. Like it's just, 
Sounds you know, like it was fun, so man. much fun. Yeah, it was fun, dude. <laughs> for sure. But but you know, and but it wasn't like it wasn't like successful. Like it wasn't like it was great for us to be together. Together, but you then, make like, the memories. You hang out. Yeah, it's a story yeah, it was fun. that you it was tell. Like, yeah, you know, there was thirteen of us all together in two giant cars and vans, just like we had the CBs. We were like making fun of each other the whole time and writing songs, making fun of each other and uh, videotaping each other. We were like, it was just so, dude. It was so much fun. And yeah. then like you know we're not really progressing like the band's not really progressing at this point like it's just we're, we're sort of laying back and doing local things the label interest drying up like you know, and then uh decide to shake things up a little bit pete is just so out of control on these shows and he never has any money and he's very he's always disappearing and i don't know if he's got a drug problem or a mental problem but i was like pete's got to go like he's he's bringing this whole thing down. Um, Steve from Shutdown is coming to a lot of the shows because my brother had moved to Florida and Shutdown broke up. And Steve always liked Tony Stark and he's very supportive of the bands. So the other guys in the bands were like, "Do you think you can get Steve to replace Pete?" And I was like, uh, "I don't I don't know." I was like, "I don't know if that's such a good idea because I don't know if Steve's going to want to do that. He just spent all these years in a band with my brother." And um, I make the pitch to steve and i was like listen we're gonna sack pete do you want do you want to take a spot and he was like uh yeah <laughs> like, yeah absolutely wow. and he was like what do, you, what do you think i've been hanging around for like like he just he saw like that the band was a rock band that does well that plays good things and has success but doesn't like you know doesn't he was exhausted he had just toured the world with my brother he'd been to europe he'd been to japan and americas and victory records and just a lot of drama and he had, he had had enough he was yeah. just tired so he, we, I throw Pete out and it was hard because I'd spent all this time with him, but it was time for Pete to go. Like Pete needed to go. So I remember we get rid of Pete and we have this big show coming up and Steve's going to play. And, uh, it's in Jersey, I think, or something like that. And a couple of people just tap me on the shoulder and go, where's Pete? And I was like, Pete, Pete's not, Pete's not playing tonight. And they're like, oh, is he not in the band? I go, no, I don't think Pete's going to be in the band anymore. And they were like, I did, oh, that's, well, that's weird. And Pete also sang a lot, but I had Eric, you know, so I wasn't really that worried about it. Sure. And this is really like the nucleus of the band. Like at this point, it's Eric Gutman on bass, Steve from Shutdown on lead guitar, Adam on rhythm guitar, Wayne on drums, and myself. And now Steve is coming in like a bandit with material, like just a bandit of songs. And I'm like, wow, this is sounds like the Foo Fighters. Like Pete, like Pete wanted the band to be Stone Temple Pilots. Steve wanted the band to be the Foo Fighters. And the Foo Fighters were huge at the time. This is like the early 2000s. And uh, 2002, I was like, well, shit, we have all this new material with Steve. Like, I don't even want to play that much stuff off the old album anymore. Let's just move forward. So we had like an album in between, and then we had an album with Steve. So I meet this band called uh, Red Engine 9 that I met at a music conference. And this guy, Dominic, was really... And we just liked each other. Like, we liked each other's bands. We decided to exchange phone numbers and emails. And we start giving each other gigs. So he's on a label called Gig Records with a guy who used to work at TVT. It's a guy named Indian. And he goes, you know what? I think Indian would like your band. I don't think he would have liked that. The stuff you're doing now is more like uh, uh, guitar rock. Like, you know, but, uh, you know, I don't want to give him the Your Water stuff. Do you have any of this new stuff? So in the interim of all this, uh, Eric gets us a lot of looks because he's working. He's doing like off-Broadway shows at the time. There's this movie going to Sundance that needs some material that he met a guy through a guy 
And they came to one of our shows and they asked if they could use some of our songs in a finished uh, film they're taking to Sundance, a movie called Pounds. And this is like 2003. And um, they want to use two songs in the movie. So I didn't get to see the usage of the songs, but I got to sign off on the ownership. The guy comes to my house. He's literally getting on the plane to go to Sundance, the star of the movie. And he's sitting in front. I'm living in Manhattan at the time in Soho. And he's in front of my building. And I'm signing the, the contracts with him while he's trying to get to the airport. And he was like, did you? And I, he goes, I go, just so you know, I this guy named Carmine. I go, I never saw the finished product. And he goes, wait, you never even saw the movie? I go, no, the other guys did. I didn't have a chance. I, I just, you know, and he goes, oh, man, I feel weird now. And I go, no, that's fine. I go, go do well. So they go and they do really well. And they, they think of the movies getting, they, but they're up against like open water and Napoleon dynamite. Like this is a really good Sundance year. That, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So they sign up. Yeah. 2003 into 2004. Yep. So, so they, um, they basically, uh, the, the movie gets bought by Showtime. And I guess Christy Alley had a show about called Fat Actress at the time. And they wanted this movie was about a guy who really loses like 150 pounds in the movie as, as part of the, the shtick of the movie. And they're great guys, awesome people. But we thought that was going to help us. Like we thought that was the, well, okay, that'll help us. And um, that movie, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with independent films, but they could not get released for a very long period of time. Like the years it could take for one. Yeah, to get for released. sure. Actually. Yeah. For, yeah. Especially. And I didn't, Back then, absolutely, you know, because they held out and the movie never comes out like they do like little showcases here and there. And like we're in the movie. We have the closing credits and like we have a big scene in the movie. But like everything else in my life, as soon as I go to sing, it gets cut off. Like it's like every time. <laughs> so it's like pounds is a thing. Um, doesn't pan out. We, we we end up not doing that shows with five cent hero anymore because there was some kind of beef over something that happened at the Meadowlands, which is still to this day on the stand. Eric is getting married now and he's going to move to California and he wants to quit the band. So I'm like, well, fuck, this is bad because Eric's the only other person who could sing. And like, you know, we have all these harmonies and we're trying to get signed to this label. We, we go before Eric gets married. I got divorced. I'm getting married to somebody else. I'm living in the city and gig records. We go to meet gig and they're like, yeah, we'll go record. We'll put this out. And I was like, okay, can you put it out at this time frame? Because we got this movie coming out. We got this other stuff. I was like, yeah, that's no problem. It's no problem. So we go and record. I record right up until I get married. Like I'm literally like in the studio and then I'm getting married like three days later. And my honeymoon is going to be this music conference that they put us on in Delaware. Like I got to go, like, that's my honeymoon now. Like I'm in, like, that's how committed I am to this happening. <laughs> like, like I'm, this is 2003 and I'm just like, okay. I'm going to record this album. We're going to go play this showcase. And then the album's going to come out in like four months. And uh, we go to do this conference and the, we go, the guy comes to the house I rented and I rented, a, I rented two houses. I rented one for me and my wife for a few days. And then the band came out and put their girlfriends and wives or whatever. And uh, the, the label comes over and he's like, yeah, I, I like the recordings. I think it's good. Blah, 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 blah. Um, so you guys are playing this thing, this club you're playing tomorrow night. It's in a Dewey Beach, Delaware. And um, it's awesome. It's like four days of music conferences. And the show that we were on, we had played there the year before. We had an amazing slot, an amazing show, independent of any label or anything like that. Now we're going through the label and the show is terrible. Like there's no one at the show. The label's not even there. So I'm a little annoyed with this guy. 
And I go to see him and he's at some bigger show with this bigger band with other people. And I'm like, Hey man, like that show sucked. Like what the fuck? And he was just like kind of blowing me off. And I could sense like he wasn't as really into it as maybe I thought. And then I go to the guy Dominic and I'm like, Hey man, like I'm worried. Like, is this record going to come out? Like, because like we have everything ready to go here and the label doesn't seem that interested. He goes, no, nah, he's going to put it out. Don't worry. Like he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have recorded it and paid for the recording and all that stuff. He wasn't going to put it out. So I don't know what the fuck happens. There's a guy working with him that he, for gig records. And I think at the time they were putting out a remaster of Ned's Atomic Dustbin stuff, which was kind of a big reason why I wanted to be on the label. <laughs> and no, it was 2003. And I get into some kind of argument with this guy. And I don't remember the crux of it, but it was, the album was not going to come out now for an indefinite period of time. And I was like, well, fuck, we got this movie coming out, like on Showtime, like, the album was called too far along it was all new material like 10 songs 11 songs whatever and it's good and it's really good and i'm like really excited about it to come out and i'm like yeah this is like a big deal for us like we like we're putting everything into this and um wayne the drummer gets involved to try to figure out what's going on and he gets the co-guy from the label on the phone and the co-guy from the label is on the phone is like yeah indian's never releasing this he hates john uh he doesn't like the way john talks to him oh, he wants man. to fight john he wants to fight him and i'm just like and then wayne was like here we go again well guess what like you fucked this up and i'm like how did i fuck this up and i go because you did sit you told it had to come out by a certain period i go yeah, wayne that's because pounds is coming out like we need these things to happen simultaneously otherwise we're not going to get the rub you know what i mean like there was a I'm, business i might, I might have that. to enter the uh curb your enthusiasm theme <laughs> after that yeah last well time. again and like, I never heard or spoke to this guy ever again for the rest of my life. And the producer, the guy who recorded it in Queens, this poor bastard, he had the masters and we asked him, how much did you get paid for this? Because I'm still waiting to get paid. Wow. And I'm like, oh my God, like this isn't coming out. So Eric gets us on this um, thing where we're going to play like in uh, on off Broadway for two weeks for this thing with uh, this dance person. He's putting all this live music together. And it's basically uh, like, like, like basically it's called rock stars and it's like a dance company with live music. Like it's a weird concept that we start playing with them a lot. We don't end up doing a tour. Things are getting very dry. Like it's just becoming like a very like bad period. Like, like you can sense like this is probably done. Right. You know what I mean? But we're still, I really want to get this record out there. Like, you know, so we kind of release it in a limited way independently, um have a big party at sine so the band is limping into like nothingness and then in 2005 um i just before i opened my store i my wife befriends um somebody who would probably do one of the nicest favors for me in my life my wife becomes very good friends with a woman who um was married to the one of the members of erasure okay who was also in Depeche Mode and Yaz, Vince Clark. So my wife runs a nonprofit and this woman's volunteering there. And she says, oh, my husband, you may have heard of my husband. He was in Depeche Mode. And then my wife calls me up and I, I like Erasure and I love Yaz. I liked all that stuff growing up. So I was like, Vince Clark, I know who that is. That's unbelievable. She goes, yeah, that's her husband. I go, are you really? That's weird. That's so random. She's like, yeah, they want to hang out. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll hang out with that dude. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so sure. we, moved, we moved to Brooklyn and, uh, and, and now it turns out her and her sister used to there, they managed the Olsen twins. Like they were like people in the music business. So I meet Vince and, um, 
Vince is like very dry guy, but he's intrigued by me. Like he likes to make fun of the fact that I like Morrissey and he likes me a lot. I could tell he likes me and I like Vince. And then we start hanging out together a lot. So I bring him to lucky 13. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm the whole time. I'm like, I'm not going to bring up my band stuff with this guy because I just like him so much. And I have so much respect for him. So one night we're at like a bowling alley and we're smoking cigarettes outside. And Vince was like, so tell me about your band. And I was like, ah, oh, Vince, I don't want to talk about the band. And he was like, I don't know. Tracy tells me the band's pretty good, you know? And I was like, and he goes, do you own all the songs? And I go, yeah. And I don't, you know? So he goes, can you get me a catalog? Can you, can, if I give you somebody's information, can you send them the full catalog? And I go, Vince, you don't have to do that. He goes, I go, I can't ask you to do that. He goes, well, you didn't ask me. That's why I'm doing it. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't know, Vince. It's like right before like my 33rd birthday. And um, I get this person from, uh, I guess it's from Sony. I get their personal email and I send it to them. And they send me a thing back and say, give me about five or six days. I'll call you up. So it's my birthday. It's my 33rd birthday. I'm working from home. And I, I get a phone call from Vince's publicist, his publishing company through uh, Sony. And the guy was like, hey, um, I'm so-and-so. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the material you sent me. And I'm like, okay. He goes, well, first of all, I should preference. Uh, Vince is just said such wonderful things about you as a person. And I go, yeah, I, I really, I'm a little uncomfortable that he did this. And he goes, well, I, I, I certainly don't think you asked him to. Uh, I think he liked it enough. And Vince had just signed a deal with Nintendo for Move Out by Yaz. And he just got like, like a ton of money. Jeez. So, so video games were taking songs, like shoving, shipping off to Boston, I think was in one of the, yeah, yeah, time. Yeah. so, but video games. So Vince is one, basically Vince Clark out of, out of a friendship to me, didn't give a shit about my band went and told his publishing company, can you get a look at this guy and let him listen to his material and see if he has anything to try to get him on a video game or something. So cool. So the guy was like, listen, uh, I listened to the whole catalog and I couldn't really find anything specific to really zero in on. That's not to say that there's anything good or bad here. My goal here was to try to find you uh, something and I couldn't find it for you. Now that doesn't mean I won't find it in the future, um, do you have anything else? Because I definitely feel like there's like an arc here. And then, and I was like, you know, I, I don't think we do. Yeah, I'm like, I think I sent him like 30 songs. So I sent him everything, you know, and I ended up, you know, copywriting all this material and, uh, and publishing it under my own publishing company. And he was like, well, I'll tell you what, if you get more stuff, feel free to send it to me. But just based on the stuff you send me right now, I can't really do anything for you. Um, and I wanted to tell you that before I tell Vince. And I was like, you know what? I'm totally fine with that. That's fine. Yeah, for sure. And then I saw Vince, I guess that weekend. And then Vince was like, so what did he say? What did he say? Cause I didn't really talk to him. And I was like, no, he just said, send him stuff in the future. And he was like, he didn't find anything. And like, they were kind of annoyed him and his wife. And I'm like, you know, it's okay. Like you don't have to find me a publishing deal. Yeah. <laughs> like here's this British guy in like this huge band, like, and I've known him for like four months and he's doing more nicer things for me than anybody that I've ever, like ever encountered. And I think because at that point, I realized that I knew how to manage my relationships a little better because they were all falling apart so badly that I was just like, here's somebody that I admire so much that I respect and he's my friend. And like my wife's going on vacation with them. Like I, I'm not fucking this relationship up by being a dick about a band. 
if it doesn't happen, at least let it be not because of me as a person. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Dark satellite.